Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Ro Coley. Ro's resume is pretty illustrious, uh, ranging from stints at Roadrunner Records, Century Media, Warner Records, you name it, he's done it. Obviously, in relation to Roadrunner Records, my point of interest was Ro's input into the street team culture, which I was kind of born into uh, in my experience in the UK. You couldn't fucking move without seeing a Roadrunner street teamer. Uh, so we go into that stuff. Ro's current venture is with War Machine Customs. Now, I don't want to short sell War Machine because really they do everything. Uh, they say it the best in their About Us section on the website, which is if business is war, we have your best ammunition. So there's a range of things that Ro does, including like backdrops for bands, promotional materials. One of the things that they uh, specialize in is customized action figures. We go into all this stuff, but I want you to check out the link in the description. We start off by talking about War Machine, then we talk about Star Wars, then we talk about Roadrunner. So for the first time on this podcast, I'm, I'm actually going to recommend you skip to 45 minutes if you want to just get straight into the Roadrunner stuff. However, you'll be doing me, you'll be doing Ro, and you'll be doing everyone else in the world a disservice if you were to skip over the War Machine stuff, because it is compelling. It's a long one, I'll give it that, but this is what happens if you vibe with someone, man. Metal, Star Wars, and Roadrunner, this guy's got it fucking all for me. But yeah, stick around to the end for this one, because there's a load of good fucking stories. Thanks very much to Ro. One, do fuck shit up. When I was doing my research, which was just the X-Man podcast and as much materials on you I could find. <laughs> and when I was reading emails, I was like, you know what? This is going to be, this is going to be, you clearly understand the reverence for the label. This should be like oh, yeah. a walk in the park. Just understanding the, um, the gravitas from your perspective should be, should be really interesting. But the, the, you know how this, this is interesting how this came about because um, Corey Taylor did an interview with Steve-O and he talked about the, the label getting eaten up by Warner. And mm. that was posted on Ultimate Guitar. And someone left a comment saying, dude, I was part of the street team, all these stories, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Maybe I should do a, story, a video about it one day. And I reached out to the dude and he hadn't come back to me, but it did make me think street team, street team. Why do I feel like I should be acting on that? And then I looked at my first notepad well, that I did for this project back like last year before I even started. And your name was in here because I'd listened to that yeah. episode. And I was like, it's... <laughs> The street team stuff is critically important to like, especially the UK experience, because I guess it's a smaller island. There's a lot, all the activities are a lot more concentrated. But I feel right. like it had, a, it felt like it had a much more, Roadrunner had much more of a uh, potent presence in the UK as a result of it. And obviously, I know you're not the UK street team, but I'm interested in how the idea came about for the label and all that stuff. But I wanted to talk about like pluggables and interesting stuff off, off up top. So can we talk about War Machine for very for a very brief moment? Sure, sure, sure. What did you do for Weezer? <laughs> what did we do for Weezer? We did uh, we did their backdrop, right? And uh, we did their backdrop for one of their tours, and we did something else. Shoot, and it's totally escaping me what it was. Um, it was a while back though, but yeah, we definitely, I remember we definitely did their backdrop, which was huge. It was like 20 foot by 30 foot. It was for their festivals. It was a massively huge backdrop. Um, but I know we did some merch. I feel like we did keychains. It was funny. I was just talking, I was just talking to my wife about how like, I'm like, we really need to call together like all of our sample photos. Cause it's just been, you know, the past, whatever, 11, 20 years of just, gathering photos and posting them online randomly and everything. And now I'm like, you know, we don't have like a catalog of everything we've made. And as I've been thinking about it the last couple, I don't know, maybe a week or two, I was like, you know, quantity wise, 
over the last, I'm like, we've made like 3 million items. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, like between, you know, just companies that need 150,000 of this or 10,000 of that or 18,000 of this. Like we've done so many things that I was just like, oh my God. Like now it's like everywhere I look, there's like a bin that says Roadrunner, or the War Machine promo on it. I'm like, I open it up. I'm like, all right, we did stuff for Black Veil Brides. I totally forgot about that. You know, we did stuff for Cheryl Crow. And like, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's so bizarre, you know, tons of Queens of the Stone Age stuff. And we've done stuff for Foo Fighters. And, you know, it's just, the more I look at it, the more I'm like, I totally forgot about that. It's interesting because like from, from a sort of consumer perspective, you look at the site and you go, okay, like bespoke items. Okay. Treasure. Blah, blah, blah. But you don't understand the, the sheer gravity until you look at the client list and you go, all oh, right, this guy ain't fucking yeah. about. There's like, there's not only is it really prolific, but it's also extremely extensive. Right. And, and really diverse, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people, yeah, we deal with everybody from death metal to Disney. And that pretty much kind of nails it. It's like at that point you can't, you know, you're like, I, okay, I get it. Like that's, that's it. You know, like I think those are the pretty much the two extremes that we can, you know, so we'll do stuff for a death metal band, but we've done stuff for churches, you know, like, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, the action figure still the big seller. Um, they're not a huge seller. Um, they're, they're my favorite seller <laughs> because it, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, in a really weird kind of backwards kind of way, War Machine allows me to do the action figures, you know? So it's like we can, because uh, the action figures is my favorite part of of this company. And I love the fact that, you know, yes, I have to make, sometimes I have to make stuff. Not that I, I don't, I never mind making anything for anybody. I mean, nobody comes up to me as like, hey, can you make me swastika, you know, stickers? You know, <laughs> nobody comes up to me for stuff like that. So, you know, I, I never mind making anything for anybody. Um, whether it's pens or keychains or whatever, but the fact that it allows me the opportunity to do these custom action figures for people, it's almost like for every whatever, you know, 50 clients, you know, I get 10 action figures to do. I'm like, worth it. All right, that's cool. It's not, it's not, I would love for it to blow up and be a tremendously huge thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but for now, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things too where, even if you're in the industry, if you're, uh, and when I say in the industry, like, I'm, have you been to a comic book conventions? I don't know. I yeah. Just, oh, dude. Okay. We'll get on to Star Wars. Yeah. No, no, for sure. For sure. <laughs> but let, Star Wars is a perfect example. So we have a booth at San Diego Comic-Con every year. And obviously cosplayers, every, you know, Uber fans, super fans, all of that stuff. And they'll just walk by my booth. Even though I have huge banners that say, make yourself into an action figure. Da, 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 they'll just walk right by. And I always have to bring these people in because to, to the normal, to regular people, the idea of a custom action figure is not even on their radar whatsoever. It's not even like their top 500 of anything they can possibly do. So the, so it's like when people are like, I can't believe it's not a bigger thing. It's like, yeah, but that's because people have no idea this even exists. Mm-hmm. until I really kind of bring them in or sometimes they just happen to go, oh, okay, like, let me just look online and I'll see what's what. And they might discover me. Um, but it's like, but, but action figure, you know, custom action figures, it's not, not, not something even cosplayers think is even remotely possible for them. I've taught, yeah. I mean, we've done stuff for the 501st, we've done a ton of stuff for them, but you know, and it's like, we've done custom action figures of people in the 501st and they'll show it to their other friends in the 501st and they're like no way and i'm like really you don't think that this is possible like how do you not think this is possible you know so it's just a really weird 
dynamic in that regard. So it's not like our biggest seller, but it's by far the friggin' most fun thing ever. Can I curse on here? Can I swear? Yeah, is that yeah, okay? yeah. I, okay. everything. The C word gets bleeps out. Everything else is fair game. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, no, it's it's just it is. It's 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 really fun, and and you know we've we've done it for fr- I've done it for friends for gifts and stuff like that. And like we, I have a buddy who uh, he helps us out at a at, at Comic Con, and he helps me out for free. And it's five days of extensive selling and just lifting and oh god it's insane and uh but he's always like no i'm just happy to be here but he cosplays as a samurai stormtrooper and so yeah and so when my friends kind of kind of show up and they help out and i'm like i'm so thankful for that that um i will always i always give them a a custom action figure of themselves so he had no idea he was getting one and to him he was like he's like i would have done this for free like this is like the greatest thing in the world (laughs) you know but even still, it's it's just a as much as I really want it to be a real, I mean, a massive thing. Um, it still hasn't quite caught on, but it's also very much a time and place thing. You know, like if I hand somebody a postcard about it, um, you know, I, I can't be like, okay, I'll hear from you later today. Correct? You know, it's like it's it's very much a time or a place thing. You know, like I want to get it for my dad's birthday, or I want to get it for my mom for Mother's Day, or you know, they have to plan it around something. It's very rarely just like. I have $300 burning a hole in my pocket. You know what, you know, custom action figure, you know, it's not really where people's heads go, but I do love it when people see it and I can show them, actually I have one right here um, where I can show them, uh, um, you know, show it to them in person, show them how they look, show them how they move. Uh, I don't know if you can see this guy right there. And uh, underneath it is my stupid head, (laughs) my stupid head. So, yeah, so my buddy, and he made this for me without me even realizing it. Uh, but, yeah, it's like I have my own guns, and the guns go in the back, and they come off, and we're all about accessories. And, you know, and when people see that, they're just they're just so blown away by it. And that's what I love. And even if we don't hear from people, I'm just happy that we kind of just make that impression and, and, you know, that people are really just so blown away that it's even a possibility now in their life to be an action figure. And And the way I look at it, too, is that, you know, like, let's say, I don't know, I would imagine you're a soccer fan, but I can't tell. I don't know. I assume every every Briton is, <laughs> is a soccer fan. But, you know, but in other words, like, I'm not a sports fan at all. But if you were a, a Manchester United fan or a Liverpool fan or something like that, or, or even like a Dodgers fan or a Lakers fan, whatever, it's like, we want to be able, like, you could be a Lakers fan and be a Star Wars fan mm-hmm. or a G.I. Joe fan or a Marvel fan. So I never want to take away people's you know, like devalue people's passion because it's not something I'm into, you know? So if you want to be a Lakers stormtrooper, I will make you into a fucking Lakers stormtrooper, you know? And we actually have we made that before, but it's like, you know, we can do, we can, what I'd say is we, we take people's passion and we literally give it physical form, you know? So like the figure I just showed you, it's like, it's me as a Sith Lord, but I'm also a huge Kiss fan, so it's like I actually have like Kiss makeup right there, and there's like a Gene Simmons tongue right there, you know. Like, it's like, and I like I call my I call my guy up, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" He's like, "Yeah, well, this is all the stuff you're into," and I was like, "Yeah, you pretty much nailed it." I think that's you that know? is the you, you hit the problem on the head, which is it would never occur to anyone that it is possible at this point. Um, I, I guess it's still like a. The ten the technological side of things is kind of I wouldn't say it's emerging because you're doing it, but for it to enter the zeitgeist as something that's doable, you got to remember that they put wheels on suitcases after the moon landing. 
So right. these things take <laughs> totally right. yeah, they, these things take differently. So no, just, totally, they, and that's exactly it. And, and not only that, but it's like people also have a very um, what's the word I'm looking for inflated idea of what um, 3D printing is capable of. Mm. So to them, they're like, "Oh, you just 3D print them," and I'm like, "No, you can't 3D print an, an action figure that has articulation. Like that's not mm. how it works." And in people's heads, they're like, oh, just take this guy, put him in some weird microwave looking thing, hit times 10 and then 10 pop out. What's the problem? You know, and that's really where people think that it, it is. And when I tell them, like, no, it's it's all done by hand. There's no 3D printing whatsoever. No molds, no casting, no any of that. And they're just like, but why not just 3D print it? And I'm like, because it's not the Jetsons. It's not we're not there yet. <laughs> you know, this isn't, you know. This isn't the Transformers. Like, I don't have that, yeah. that ability to do this stuff. You know, so that's that's the other part of it is really uh, uh, managing people's expectations and their assumptions on what is possible and what is not, mm-hmm. you know. And then sometimes people are like, well, I don't like any of this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's fine. We could just do you on a normal day. You could just have jeans and a T-shirt on and we'll make you an action figure like that. So you don't have to be a character. And then also just the same, like, well, what are you into? Uh, what's what's uh, your big... G.I. Joe fan, Star Wars, oh Harry my Potter, God. I don't know. Star Wars, but I've not watched anything for six months since I started this Roadrunner thing. It's actually kind of questioned <laughs> what it's questioned what I like. <laughs> right. But yeah, Master but, but, Star Wars, dude. Okay, so, so you know, it, it, it's... So when it comes to doing this, it's like people... You know, like, let's just say there's a character in Star Wars that, you know, maybe from a video game or from a comic book that never had an action figure. We can make that also. Kyle so Kassan. it's like you... Yeah, so it's like you can have an an action figure that is just unique for you. Like that's mm. it. It is it is your figure. You're the only that's what I love telling people when we make figures of them. I'm like, you're literally the only person in the world that has this. It's so bespoke. You know? It's borderline heirloom. Yeah. You know no, I mean? it totally is. And even if you do one of yourself, it's not like anyone can like call it. You know, nobody can be like, oh, I get his, you know, I get his action figure of himself. <laughs> like nobody can steal it. Nobody can claim it as theirs. Like it is mm. yours. Like if you saw a figure like that, like with the Mohawk, you know, you'd probably be like somebody stole that from real. You know, like he would not just willingly give that up for something, you know, and that's kind of it. It makes it uniquely yours. And especially when you go to conventions and you go to, and you know, Funko and all these things and everybody and their mother has exclusives. And then you realize just how diluted the term exclusive really is. How is it exclusive if there's 50,000 of them? Like, that's not yeah. really exclusive, you know? And so the same, and so I always tell people, like, what's more exclusive than one of one? Literally the only one that's out there and you have it, yeah. you know? So we've, we've done that for a lot of people where they'll just be like, you know, uh, I had a guy not too long ago, he wanted to make a really obscure Marvel character. And uh, named, uh, uh, what's, what's his name? Uh, Tom, no, not Thomas. Uh, um, oh, shit. Now I can't think of it. But anyway, he ends up becoming like the new Red Hulk or something like that. Right. And uh, some super smart dude, like smarter than Tony Stark and all these kinds of things. But the dude didn't want him as the Hulk. He wanted him as the little Asian dude, you know, like his little like alter ego. And I was like, yeah, nobody's really going to probably end up making that. So why not? You know, so that's kind of the cool thing. So it doesn't have to be a person that, you know, or you, it can just be a character in a, in a TV show or a movie that's just never had an action figure. And you can do that. Or you could just make up your own, you know, I want to have a Green Lantern Stormtrooper. OK, I'm like, sure. Why not? <laughs> we'll do it. You know, so that's what makes it fun. And, and I, like I said, I wish I wish it was bigger than it is. But one of the things that I've been working on also is like for Comic-Con. Uh, Because I always had like, you know, uh, 
the war machine marketing booth. And, and I've come to the conclusion that nobody really gives a fuck about war machine marketing. Like as you know, we're not, we're not McFarlane toys, you know, we're not entertainment earth, you know, like, Oh, go to the war machine marketing booth. Like people are like, what? All right, fine. I would, just tell me the number. Like, that's all I care about. And so, um, one of the things that we're going to do is we're actually going to change it to war machine customs where I want to basically sell nothing but custom action figures. So that this way, when people come to our booth, we literally have something they can't get anywhere else. Not yeah. at all. You it know, so me and my, love all right, customs. right. And exactly. Cause it's like, and, and there's really hardly anybody who really sells customs like this, uh, especially the way we do it too. Cause we can also do like card backs and packaging and all. I mean, so we can really make it, something you know my my whole thing is i call it toyetic art because it's art that you can literally play with Mm -hmm. you know so it's like if we do a a custom uh, card back it comes with like a removable blister you pop the blister off take your figure out have some fun with it pose it do whatever take pictures put it in the millennium falcon whatever and then when you're done with it put it right back in the case snap it shut and put it on the wall and it's back to being art you know so it's like literally art you can play with you know i have paintings all over the place other than hanging them up on my wall, I can't do much with them. I think the yeah. word marketing as well has aged poorly in the digital age, uh, simply because it would imply that there's like an engagement service that you're offering. And I guess mm-hmm. if people see that over a crowd of heads against the word custom, with custom, you know exactly what you get. With marketing, you think you're going to get a pitch in a... Exactly, a, a exactly. Pitch. And that's one of the reasons why we changed why I changed the name this year. Yeah. It's that now it's War Machine Custom Merchandising because... I had people coming up to me. I mean, as you know, I, I did street teaming a long time ago and people will come up to me and be like, Hey, bro, I need a street team. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't done that in 15 years. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but that's what people they're like, but it's marketing. And I'm like, yeah, but we make items for marketing. And then I'm like, you know, that that's a clunky way of doing things. So, and I, it also makes me realize too, like how many people probably needed t-shirts and was like, I don't, I don't need marketing. And how many people, you know, you know, kind of like vice versa. So I, I, we, we, that's, that's kind of my thing is that now I've, I've sort of streamlined it so that it's, you know, it's merchandising, you know what you're getting, you know, but yeah. Is once people understand the customization ability and the capability you've got, they don't lose it. So it's like only, you can only get more awareness, not less. So exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, we're, I'm, it's like, it's funny because if you saw me at my booth, I know that people in booths, around me I, I i always wonder like how sick they are of hearing me do my spiel to people all day long or even the, the people who work at my booth if they're like oh here he goes again and i'm like hey come on over let me tell you and i'm like just doing it all day long you know to the point where it's like you know my wife will just like i'll, I'll like i'll like walk by her and she'll just be like mumbling my spiel like just to herself i'm like it's just like you know everyone just kind of knows it by heart in a really weird way shut up <laughs> sorry yeah. my wife's being a pain in my butt uh but yeah that's that that's you know she uh but th- that's you know but again it's like to me i'm so excited about it that's why we, uh, i don't know if you saw but we got written up in forbes for it yeah, yeah. um I did, I did read that hear that on maybe a podcast or something yeah yeah so it's in my email signature too um right. but yeah i mean like that was that was a huge huge deal for for me at least i mean you know you know maybe it's not you know maybe it didn't lead to like some massive surge in sales, but you know what? I mean, if, if I die tomorrow, I can go, Hey man, at least I was, I was in Forbes for something, you know, that's not the worst, Mm. that's not the worst place in the world to be, you know? I'll link it in the description for those. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's uh, I mean, it was really funny. That interview was funny too, because I thought he was just going to interview me and then pull some 
little tidbit and he like put in the entire interview it's like six pages on i was like oh my god I wasn't expecting that to happen but okay you know but it was it was cool i mean it, it gave me a chance to to really celebrate my 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 sculptor my partner with that you know and he's just incredible at what he does and you know he's he's very much the hands and i'm the mouth but uh yeah. but he's the the stuff that he has created is nothing short of mind-boggling mm-hmm. even when he tells me he's stuck on a figure and everything when he's finally done with it i'm like he he like it's a really weird thing when you get an action figure in your hands and it you feel like the tears start to well up just because you're like this is like the most beautiful thing i've ever seen in my life you know and then when it's when you realize it's you with you know as as your favorite star wars character like you know boba fett or whatever you know when when i got my first mandalorian general uh you know action figure i i i didn't know what to say i was i was so like i was it almost looked like somebody had like knocked the wind out of me because i was so just like i never in my life thought i would see this ever in a physical fight and sure enough there it is you know and mm-hmm. and he's only gotten better he's only gotten better and uh and we also do the custom Funko pops too what i call pop style figurines sure for legal reasons yeah yeah well we you know it's funny we started a a, a knockoff company so we just switched the n and the k so our company's <laughs> called fuck no <laughs> so we make fuck no pops fuck no pals that's what we call them we don't call them pops we call them pals so our slogan is uh will they make it fuck no but we will so we did like charles manson we did charlie benante from anthrax we did carla from butcher babies um so we you know we we have a bunch that we're planning on but yeah so we we like to do like these because we're you know i'm kind of like cool let's do a jeffrey dollar pop like funko's not gonna do it like whatever dude you know so we make like a series we we do like an addition of five or ten and you know people are just like yeah i'll take it man like <laughs> you know better than any of these other pops that are out there that everybody's got 25 billion of you know it's like yeah i know nobody else is gonna have a charles manson one i'll guarantee you that <laughs> or especially one that glows in the dark too you know so so yeah so it's like you know i i also like to be able to just like getting tattooed and everything it's like i like to find great artists and be like, okay, let's, let's, let's collaborate. Let's do something together that can really, you know, that can help everybody, but in the end also can show people just really what's out there and what's attainable, you know, as a, as a huge star Wars fan, you know, I, again, I never would have in my life thought that a custom of me would even be a possibility. And now it's like, we've done them. We, we did one for, um, have you ever, uh, there's a show called Aquarius. Um, Not David Duchovny. Oh, okay. uh, David Duchovny's in it. It's uh, it takes place around the Manson crimes, I think, something like that. I haven't really watched it, but uh, but they came to us and we did the main three actors, which is David Duchovny and the Great Dame, Great Damon, and uh, I can't remember the woman's name, but you know, and we did the producer of the show too, you know. So it's like we, you know, it, it's just like these really cool ways to just celebrate. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, like whether it's an event or celebrate a person's passions, like we do, we did uh, a few for a buddy of mine where um, they put their son in a different Halloween costume each year. Okay. And so it becomes their sort of timeline for their kid. So one year he was Darth Vader and then he was got a little bit older and he designed his own costume. So he was like a rocketeer ghostbuster. And then, you know, we're going to do another one and, you know, just each year it becomes like another uh, uh, kind of, yeah, yeah. Just this really cool timeline of, of their son's like Halloween costumes. 
And they're always just like, we can't believe you made it. And I'm like, oh, you think you can't believe it? I can't believe it when I get it in my hands. And I'm like, oh shit, this he did it. But we we did one recently for uh, this guy where uh, the character in his movie was this girl with with pink hair. She has a rabbit mask, like a half a rabbit mask, comes like up to here with these rabbit ears. And uh, I feel like I'm giving away a trade secret right now, but whatever. Um, but he, my guy couldn't figure out how to make these rabbit ears. He was like, what? there's nobody's got rabbit ears. How am I going to do? He took a stormtroopers, like the bottom part of a stormtrooper leg between the knee and the ankle. Right. And he trembled the shit out of it and made it into friggin' rabbit ears that fit into this. And I was like, are you kidding me? And he was like, oh, it worked out really good. And I was like, oh my God. Like, just like I said, the stuff he comes up with is just, I'm like, you win bro like you win the internet man like i don't even know what to tell you but again that's why i like i like pairing up with 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 good artists because i feel like those are the people that really you know need to be celebrated in some way shape or form so that's Forbes article gave me an opportunity to to talk about my sculptor a little bit which you know because he's usually like it's like a stay-at-home dad he's yeah, he's like a stay-at-home dad. He's kind of like an introvert, you know, doesn't really like to talk to people unless it's like people like me or we're talking about, you know, ankle or, or elbow articulation or something. <laughs> like he doesn't really, you know, doesn't, you know, if it's me and him and like his wife and my wife, like they're just like, we're going to be over here. You guys can talk about elbows and ankles. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it's like, it's, it's cool that, you know, he, I was able to give him props in that regard. So, but yeah, but the, the custom action figure thing is, is, is really cool. Let me know Did if you ever Oh yeah, I do. If, if if I ever have budget, it's a it's a really good idea for like a really bespoke gift or something like that. So yeah, it's on my radar yeah. now. Yeah, totally. It's and it's yeah. like I said, man. It's when you get it in your hand, you're just kind of like each time I get it, like I know he he's usually really hard on himself. So he'll be like, yeah, I think it came out okay. And I'm just like, I <laughs> I've, there's been many a time where I call him up, I have a figure in my hand, and I'm like, fuck you for being this good at this. Like, really? Like, you're an asshole. And he's like, uh, thank you? And I'm like, I don't even know what to say, but it's like, it's almost unfair that he's so talented. You know, and it's like, I can barely draw a straight line with a ruler, and like, this guy's just like, mm, just like, here you go, brand new thing. I'm like, okay. You know, we made we made a Megadeth action figure, we did an Iron Maiden the Trooper action figure, we've done, like, the stuff he's managed to make just when I'm like, hey, how about if we try a you know, Joker, Darth Vader. And he's like, this is okay, cool. Here you go. And I'm like, okay, um, let's try a Deadpool clone trip. This is okay, cool. Here you go. And I'm like, okay, that's weird and like unfair, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it is really cool. You know? So if you do get a budget, man, throw, throw in, throw in a couple extra hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars and, uh, put, put in a custom action figure as part of your, one of the line items. Yeah, man. You know, definitely. Who did your Star Wars tattoo? Have a drink uh, first. My- <laughs> Well, I have I have two, so I have I have uh, this one right here. I have the little Mandalorian uh, Mythosaur skull yeah. that I actually got back in like 1995 when nobody gave a rat's ass about Star Wars, and uh, I I had seen uh, I think the guitar player from Clutch actually has a Boba Fett tattoo, and I was like, I'm getting a Boba Fett tattoo, and yeah. so uh, a buddy of mine did it. And he did a completely horrifyingly terrible job with it, and then uh, my friend out here, Todd Townsend in L.A friggin amazing amazing tattoo artist he he redid it and relined it it's it's beautiful now and then the the do or do not there is no try that was uh connor garrity at a timeless tattoo he's also lead singer of uh, all hail the yeti wow wow yeah and uh I've, I've known him for many many years and um i don't recommend getting something on your fingers it hurts like a motherfucker <laughs> that's good though 
It does. I always have to get them touched up, and it's like the worst day of my life when I have to do that. <laughs> it's just like, you know, like, oh, God, it's not even that many letters, but it's just like, oh, it's like lighting up, like le- holding a lighter under a paper clip and then taking the heated end and just scraping your skin. That's what it feels like. That's what I'm just like, okay, no, it's for a good, it's for a bigger reason. It's yeah. Okay. I want to get, yeah. I want to get more Star Wars tattoos. I've got only just the one, which is the Jedi Knight. Boom. Very nice. Um, very, very. I nice. keep thinking I want to wait for Celebration to come to London. And do you know how like they have like the tattoo bit with uh, all the licensed artists? You know, I regret not getting it. My friend got one at the at a Celebration Four out here. I think it was Celebration Four, um, and uh, she had gotten one. And I remember I was like, yeah, you know, there was a bunch of times I was just wandering around the convention. Like I'd already kind of walked the halls. I did everything, and I was like, why didn't I just fucking? I just spent like $900 on like action figures. Like, why didn't I just get a tattoo while I was at it? You know, and I, it was one of those things I walked away like, oh, that was kind of stupid. Uh, but we, <laughs> we actually just got a celebration announced here for uh, 2022. Oh, in shit. I missed yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah, that just, I think it, I think it just got announced either today or yesterday, but, uh, but I, I'm hell bent on having a table there. And, you know, it's funny too, because ever since, um, Disney bought Star Wars. Um, they're a lot more strict with their their stuff. Yep. So originally, when Lucasfilm was doing it, having custom action figures not even an issue. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, for me to showcase my my customs, they I have all these rules I got to follow. Like I can't I can't sell any there. We can't make any there. All I can do is sort of just hand out. Like uh, uh, I was gonna say propaganda, which sounds very weird. Uh, but like you know, promotions, promotions, <laughs> propaganda. Um, propaganda. But like hand out promotional stuff, and uh, you know, like just show, just show it to people. But we yeah. can't actually take orders there. We can't do any of that. So everything has to happen after the fact. But I'm like, if that's what I get, I'm 100 percent great with that. That's not yeah. even an issue. You know. Yeah. But it's cool though, because like you know, if you want to be like a Jedi or a Sith, we'll do like a custom lightsaber hilt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so it could be just something that's for you, you know, like if you're like, well, I love whatever, you know, I love baseball or something like we could do it where it's like the bottom half is a baseball bat and then the lightsaber comes out, you know, so we can just do something that's just really just super, just like I said, just unique for you. My convention experience is um, I collect autographs from the original trilogy um, and get the posters signed. Oh. So there's one up there now. There's two in the well, New Hope up there, Empire and Jedi in the tube over there. Very so I'm just nice. Wait, waiting for it all to come back because we lost a lot over the last year. So it's like shit, yes. we're running, running out of dudes. <laughs> that was the other thing. I that was the other thing at D23. I had an opportunity. It was like you know Ian McDermott, like fifty dollars to take a picture. I'm like ah, but you know Carrie Fisher, like a hundred dollars. Yeah, whatever. And now I'm like. Well, that was freaking dumb. So yeah, so I, I passed up on a lot of that. But actually, um, so my guy who's the um, um, the samurai trooper, uh, he's also one of my customizers. And uh, I don't know if I can take him down or if I can really kind of show him to you. <laughs> to you from here. Um, he does. He takes the eighteen and the eighteen and the thirty-four inch figures, mm-hmm. and he turns them into samurais. So I'm going to show you. Holy shit. <laughs> Stormtrooper over there. Wow. I don't know. It's like, I can't tell. You can see it, but yeah. yeah, yeah it's good. Yeah. So, uh, so he does. He does that sort of stuff too. So, you know, it's just uh, like I said, it's like anybody who does this sort of stuff, I'm always just like, holy shit. But that's how me and him met. I kept buying his stuff off of eBay. Mm-hmm. 
and he lived uh he lived only like an hour away and then i was just like just you know he was like oh you're only an hour away he's like i'm always down there to play paintball so he just mm-hmm. kept delivering them to me and then i was like dude i'm like I- i'm buying all your stuff and i feel like that's unfair <laughs> you know yeah. so we ended up becoming friends after that and now yeah so he'll make some customs for us too but yeah it's like it's it's a really it's a cool thing though man and, and i can't wait for celebration though i would yeah. love to go to celebration in, in london holy shit that would be a dream come true it was awesome it was awesome i didn't meet i've got carrie um up, up there um mm. walked past her with the dog didn't get a picture taken regret it massively ah. but um no it was it was fucking wild absolutely fucking wild i, I do have a picture of uh, a boba fett at a convention and he just wrote to row you're cool jeremy bullock i was like uh, you know what boba said boba fett said i was cool i could literally die right now and i'm all good to go like are you good you that know? daniel logan didn't get the role of boba in the new mando or do you are you happy it was um to, is tomorrow it, morrison? Tomorrow? yeah I, I, I love tomorrow morrison i've been a huge Ooh. fan of him since uh once we're warriors so um i and yeah. and nobody nobody could do that as good as he did now did he look a little thick he did but at the same time, I was kind of like, okay, what? I got to – not for nothing. I went to the gym for the first time in, like, months today. So, you know what? Who the fuck am I to say anything that he looks big? <laughs> okay? Motherfucker was Boba Fett. I, like – you know, they could have given him horns, and I would have been like, yep, nope, that works for me. Great. No problem. You know? So, yeah. you know, so to me, I love Tamora Morrison. I think he's awesome as all the clones. Uh, I, I think he's got, like, the best voice, yep. you know? And and just like when you know, uh, that's what I loved in the in that in those episodes when uh, in the Mandalorian, just when he was just like, yeah, this is my father's armor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like it was, it, it just it was. I remember like kind of getting all teary because I was like, this is like the best Father's Day episode ever, you know. Like, <laughs> I remember my dad, and here's how I remember, and I was just like, that's awesome, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that I, I I've met Daniel Logan a number of times. Um, yeah three of those times he was extraordinarily drunk i don't think he can hold his liquor all that well he he's like one of those new zealanders i was like i can drink anybody under the table and then you see him passed out in the corner and you're like really dude like chill out (laughs) slow down but uh but i've met him a couple of times and he's always been super he's he's always been super cool but it's like him playing you know if they did something where he was playing the teenage young adult boba fett sure yeah, but as as the older grizzled post Sarlacc pit Boba Fett, yeah, dude, that, that's all Tamora Morrison. You know that dude. That dude's grizzled for it. Like he's just he was really well made for it. So mm. that's why I'm excited for this Book of Fett thing to come out because I'm I have no idea what they're gonna do, but I hope it's fucking dope. You yeah, know? yeah. But uh, but yeah, dude, if you can if you can make it out here, man. I like I said, as soon as they announce uh, Celebration UK, I've only been to the UK once uh, a couple of years ago, and it was awesome and i got to go to like what is it uh, uh forbidden planet is that it yeah no, I think, is it forbidden planet yeah forbidden yes. planet i got to go to fucking world's end i got to go to all these places that i've just read about camden i've I, you know i bought so much vinyl it was stupid you know <laughs> it's just like Dude, you want to come up north that's what you want if you're yeah. into your history like where all the roman and viking forts are that's all up here oh all no the, kidding the drinking's cheaper everything else is cheaper up here oh, hey i'm game yeah, man. I'm more than game. Yeah, I think the most north we went was what Stonehenge. I think, right? I think and that was you know, which was cool, but it was just. Yeah. But I mean, we got to see like Queens of the Stone Age at, at the O2. You know, we went to the Prince Exhibit. You know, so stuff like that, just things that I've always wanted to do. Like we got to do, but um, you know, but to do something that's Star Wars related would be absolutely 
dope. Actually, it was funny when I went to Forbidden Planet. Uh, you know, there was all the UK Comic Con exclusives just like sitting there, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we got like fifty of these." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like because out here it's like impossible to find, and you yeah. guys are like, "No, no, no, we're just using it for like you know throwing the fire to keep us warm." And I'm like, "What is happening?" So it's like I walked away with so much stuff when I went out there. I was like, "I was like, I gotta stop." I'm thinking about getting these. Um, posters properly framed and like inaccessible to get it like preserved but the london film and comic cons those ones are where they drag out like all the star wars people that don't often do it like right. one guy i've not got is clive revel oh yeah like first emperor so it, it yeah, yeah. it's like I'm, I'm holding out for people like that just in case i i actually have a funko pop that's signed by uh uh what's his name uh 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 Hagen, Hagen, the guy who played Biggs. Oh, um, shit. I want to see Derek Hagen, but I don't Garrett, think that's Derek Hagen. Now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have a Funko Pop with it, and it's like, it's a $5,000 Funko Pop, <laughs> you know? But I'm like, he's not really going to be signing much in the near future. So, mm. you know, it, you know, but I, I like stuff like that. Just, you know, whenever somebody can show me something that's cool and rare and whatnot, I love, I love things like that. That's why I, I know two people out here that are huge kiss fans. Yeah. And whenever I talk to them, they're like, they'll show me on their phone, you know, they'll like kind of show me around there. And it's just fucking just kiss stuff. And I'm just, I like stuff like that just makes me like, like, Oh, this is so cool. That's why if you ever come out here to Las Vegas, um, <clears throat> um, there's a kiss mini golf, at the Rio hotel and they have a whole kiss museum in the back and it is so killer. It's the coolest thing in the world. But one of the funniest things is they sell an empty packet mm -hmm. uh, and it says air guitar strings. Wow. And it costs five bucks <laughs> and they sell out every time. <laughs> I'm like, it's oh, a nephew God. gift. I love it. It's it's such yeah. a great it's such a great gag gift. It's it's <laughs> hilarious. You know, Mattel did that for Comic Con one year. They had a the Wonder Woman's uh, invisible jet, and it was just like little things like holding, pretending to hold something in, but it was just an empty package. <laughs> so, I love I love stuff like that. Just goofy shit like that. <clears throat> all right, shall we shall we move on to Let's the, Rock the the Runner of Roads? I'm keeping all this in, by the way. I love this shit. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I could talk on I could talk about Star Wars for eons. <laughs> uh, let's just, let's, my my wife no longer cares. <laughs> She's just like, we'll, go. we'll get the elephant in the room out of the way, which is my the strongest opinion I've. Because talk about bands with people all day, and people yep. are really passionate about this stuff. But I've realized the strongest opinion I've ever held is that the Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film. I just wanted to know if you were recoiling on that or not. Oh yeah, no, I can't do it. Dude. <laughs> Sorry, man. Those, that sequel trilogy was I, again. I have my thoughts on it, and and here's the thing: it, it's just like metal bands. Okay, and, and yes. music in general, and music in general, it's art. And if I don't like it, but you like it, that doesn't mean that it's stupid to mm -hmm. me. You know, if, if somebody really loves Justin Bieber, yeah, it's not my thing, but it hits you on a certain emotional level. I, I can't take that away from you. I can't be like, you're stupid and you don't know anything. Like, no, I, I listen to Kiss. I'm like, who the hell am I? You know, like, I mean, you know, I listen to bands. I listen to Mindless Self-Indulgence and p bands people. Will, I listen to Insane Cloud Posse. I've been a juggalo for the last 20-something years. You know, like, it, it's it, it just, you know, we, we all feel it in such a different way. And for me, you know, to sit there and, I mean, I, I do feel like they, they did. I, I feel like for me, they did it a disservice doing it the way they did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's always easy to play, 
as a friend of mine says, it's always easy to be the general after the war, you know, and that's kind of it. That's kind of it. It's like, I can't, I can't sit there, you know, after they just put, you know, two and a half to three years of filming, acting, directing, lighting, special effects. I, I can't two years later be like, they're stupid. Like, okay, like, I wasn't there for any of that. Like, I didn't have a say in any of that. So how can I sit there and be like, oh, well, your vision is stupid. Do I not like the vision? Yeah, it didn't It didn't really hold well for me, you know? And and I, there are plenty of things I really do wish they redid or, you know, uh, just took advantage of a little bit better. But again, when it comes to a movie, like, you know, you know, I had a friend who who told me who said something, and and every time I hear somebody say this, I always call them out on it. But I always hate it when somebody's like, "Well, if I was in your shoes," and I'm like, "Okay, really? So if you're you're a woman, and if you were in a guy's an Indian metalhead's shoes from New Jersey, like, well, yeah, tell me what you would do. Tell me exactly what you would do if you were me. You know, like <laughs> it's just such a it's such a stupid uh, statement, and, and that's kind of how I feel about the Star Wars thing. Like, I. You know, I know people who are just like, I will never watch the prequels. And I'm like, really? Like, you know, and and that's why, like, when I try to watch Last Jedi, I mean, believe me, there's a lot of fast forwarding that goes on in my world <laughs> when it comes to those <laughs> movies, you know, more so than even the love scenes in the prequels. Um, because there are just certain things where I'm just like, okay, really? And even in the realm of science fiction, I find this hard to believe. Mm-hmm. But again, I, you know, we have that luxury of, you know we have that we have that post-production luxury of being yeah. able to comment on it and you know and if you're going to be like well that's stupid it's like you know there was that that movie employed twenty two thousand people <laughs> you know like yeah. look at the credits for five minutes like you'll see all of the people that you know all the hard work that went into it and i can't i can't say anything against that mm. and it is still star wars do i wish it was better yes do i have my own theories of what i wish they could have done and all course i do you know um i'll never forget when episode seven came out and they had that constable zuvio figure mm-hmm. you know uh and it was it was the one of the it was in the first wave of, of four inch figures and the first wave of six inch figures and the dude's not even in the fucking movie <laughs> you know and that was but that was when i realized you know because I make action figures, you know, and we, yeah. we do like larger production scale action figures. Like we'll do a thousand pieces and stuff like that. But it takes almost a year to do action figures between tooling and sculpting and approvals and all. And so when they made that figure, he was still very much in the movie. Yeah. But by the time they edited it down to what it became and he wasn't in the movie anymore, they were already in production. But for a lot of people, they think that's so stupid. Why'd they do that? And it's like, well, they didn't make it last Tuesday. You know, it's not like they just made the decision last Tuesday to do this. This is something that they had to start two years ago and yeah. bring it to bring it to someplace now. And, you know, that's why it always kills me when, you know, because I'm a big General Giant fan. I love the General Giant stuff. They're mm-hmm. some of my favorite things. General Giant Sideshow. I love their stuff. But General Giant came out with some Stormtrooper uh, mini bust, and people were like, that's so stupid. It's just a repainted. Why can't they just? And I'm like, oh, really? Why can't they just use their billion dollar 3D printing machine to do a better job? Really? <laughs> really? That's that's really that's where you're going to go with this. So so that's why when it comes to if you like Last Jedi, if you liked you know, Rise of Skywalker and everything, like, you know, again, I can't say anything because it's still Star Wars. 
I would like it to be canon with the Christmas special, with the holiday special, where we can still kind of go on a different path and a different yeah. timeline. <laughs> but that's just me. And that's a perfect world. And I don't live in a perfect world. So I'm OK with it, you know. Think- but but we still get stuff like KOTOR. We still get Knights of the Old Republic. We still get, you know, uh, uh, you know, like the Mandalorian, the Grogu mm. stuff. We still get to see a live action Ahsoka. The Bad Batch is super cool. I really dig that. You know, uh, the Clone Wars, absolutely. Clone Wars and Rebels are absolutely amazing and stunning. And just uh, there, there's been more than enough times where I've actually cried during Rebels and Clone Wars because it's just so heartfelt and so emotional. Mm. And and so that's why to me, I can never sit there and be like, "Fuck Star Wars, I'm done." You know, like no man there's still you know just like listening to a record and, and not liking two songs and being like that, fuck that record it's like okay there's still 10 awesome songs there you know it, so it's interesting because the one thing you mentioned there is like we live in a post-production world and it's like i don't think i think the sequel trilogy is what exposed that and it actually speaks to a lot to this roadrunner project because mm-hmm. there was a period of time before 2015 where things just happened and you took them at face value and you took it as you found it and right. then when star wars came out then you start second guessing and going right well okay, well, Mark Hamill needs to lose weight. Harrison Ford got hit on the leg with the Millennium Falcon and all this stuff. And how does that affect the out, um, the output? Blah, right. blah, 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 blah. And I think for me, it, when we talk, I, start, I fucking love that. Just tracking like the intention versus delivery. And as you say, what was happening in, in pre-production that didn't come out in post-production? How did that affect the whole role? Right. But... When we talk about, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift shift it to Roadrunner because it is poignant. Because now I'm it, trying it to absolutely find, is, dude. <laughs> it is, yeah. There is a connection for sure. Because I'm, I'm trying to find methods in the madness. Because we, you and I know we revere the label in a sense that we know it had a particular mark on metal. I this most people must be fucking sick of me saying this, but like the top down way of looking at it is, it was a vehicle. Roadrunner was a vehicle for disruption. Massively a vehicle for disruption. And when I was speaking That's to a great Mark, way to put it. yeah, yeah. That's when I was speaking to, to Mark Abramson yesterday, it was like, well, look, you had Simon Cowell trying to put his foot in the door with all these music and algorithmically generated hits and revenue streams. And then there's nine nut jobs in jumpsuits who are selling platinum records. That's disruptive in a positive way. So how can we reverse engineer that? Right, mm-hmm. our generation, and and go. Okay, how can we administrate metal in the same way that Roadrunner did? Because really, if you think about it, the trajectory of um, Roadrunner as a label, with making bands that were fringe, such as Slipknot and, and the death metal stuff, all that stuff, and making it commercially viable. If you take the trajectory and you take it to its logical conclusion, it puts like death metal on the same table as pop. Yeah, but it didn't happen. It kind of it kind of stopped. Really, I know we could, I could I could overanalyze that a bit, but this is why the project is sort of taking a form because I'm like, well, we need to look at this because no one's looked at the history of running. Run right, it's almost like we need we need a kind of a psychological evaluation of everything that sort of took place because, like you said, it's there. It's not. It's not. You know, that's why I always love when people talk about like bands on the radio, <clears throat> and I'm like, it's not like a radio station likes a likes a song and then they just play the shit out of it. It's like there's so much that goes into you getting to hear that song on the radio yeah you know and and that's kind of it if you really do understand the 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 psychology of everything that's one of the reasons why i love doc Coyle's uh podcast um is because you know when i listen to people like carl severson or or uh, you know i just listened to the tim williams from vod one the other day like carla harvey you know or 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 just some of the people that you know me and and doc sort of grew up around in that in that Mm -hmm. era mark hunter from Camira, you know like to hear all of their 
perspectives on it. Like these are all the things that are so important to building up the 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 sort of building the universe of what happened in that time period. Mm. And a lot of people just think like, well, we're not stupid for getting Nickelback or you know something like that. And I'm like, no, there's there's a whole you know there's a whole house that was being built. You know, and you can't just be like, I hate the bathroom. That's so stupid. You know, like, no, it's like there's there's so much that's going on. That is the reason why the bathroom is where we put it, you know, and, and it's it's very much that that's why I love what you're what you're doing with this, because it really does help. And like you talking to Abramson and, and just all the people, it's just like it puts it, it kind of puts each brick on top of the right other bricks to fill in every single gap of what's happening and what did happen, you know, because yeah. it doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's for sure. I mean, there's two angles to it. There is what we've said there is it's understanding it. And then there's the other angle, which is we're much better at communicating these days than we were 20 years ago. And I find it now kind of unacceptable for people to say that Roadrunner shot on bands and Roadrunner did shit deals. There right. is an architecture behind it, which explains everything. Like a big one being like, I, 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 I didn't put this in the documentary as it stands, which is getting mm-hmm. redone. But um, if you think about sort of like 1983 and 1986 period, there's about 25 albums, original signings. So what Case had to do there was he had to sign the band, give the advance, develop it and promote it. So we know the deals were kind of baby band deals at $5,000 and the marketing, let's, let's be really, really naive and say it was another 5,000. So that's been like a three year period, any given period, a three financial years, you've got about quarter of a million dollars going out the door and that's pure gamble, pure gamble. The case was really smart with something, in my opinion, when he started the all blacks and blue grape, because then he was like, cool, we'll work with your publishing and we'll make your merch. So it wasn't just, I think if he had solely thought like, I'll just do record, you know, record deals, I don't think Roadrunner would necessarily have lasted the way it did. I think it had to have all of those kind of components, the the publishing rights, you know, and again, I don't, I I can't speak to how good or bad those deals were, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, when you do have multiple uh, uh, irons in the fire, you know, you don't, you know, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. And that was always something that I always very much respected that they did was, you know, to have blue grape be this vehicle for, you know, especially when you're signing a band, like, like a Sepultura, you know, these guys are from teenagers from Brazil, you know, they don't, they, like when they came to the country, I think that all they could say was yes and no, or something like that. Like, like they couldn't speak English, you know? And it's like, okay, well, who's going to do your merch? And they're like, looking at each other like, okay, you know, and, 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 you know, but that's when they come in and they're like, look, we'll do your merch also. So it's like you kind of get a really, I don't want to say a full package, but like you definitely get more than just here's a shitty record deal. You know, like you at least get like, OK, cool. Somebody's handling our publishing. Somebody's handling our, you know, you know, somebody's looking out for our interests in these sorts of ways. And I think without that, you know, Roadrunner, in my opinion, Roadrunner would have either fizzled quickly mm-hmm. Or, you know, would have just been probably acquired by somebody else and then just pretty much, you know, laid Shelf. the rest. Yeah. To relay what you said there, but putting the shoe on the other foot, from mm-hmm. a, the label's perspective, they're saying, we think there's something viable in your brand, lads. However, mm-hmm. because we want this to work, we want to remove all dependencies. So we're dependent right. on your business acumen on the management side and the touring side and some of the other administrative sides. We'll just take that. Right. It might not be favorable terms, but, well, I, again, I can't speak to that because I don't know the, de- the details on right. that side of it. But I'm sure, like, 
many of the complaints and uh, retrospectives on Roadrunner usually it doesn't quite as favor the artist as much as you as they would have liked. It's like well, you can again the general after the battle stuff. They're trying exactly. to push you, Brandon. They're trying to send you. They're trying to make you a global name. Sometimes those are the compromise and the controlling interest needs to be in the person that's been in the record industry for 30 years at that point. Right. And and one of the benefits at the very least also was that, especially during, I mean, during those years and even, even beyond, you know, is that you had avid metal fans like that running the, running the, the business, you know, you yes. had your Monty Connors and you had your Mark Abramson's and you had, you know, all, all of these kinds of people who, you know, it, it wasn't just like, Oh, Got to go get going to work today at Roadrunner, drink my coffee and punch in. And it was like, no, it was, it was, it was, that was the best part of it was that it was, it was a labor of love for everybody that worked there. Yeah. And yes, you might get really drunk at a show and you have to, but like, it's funny. It's like, you'd get really drunk at a show with a band like Typo Negative or whatever, but then you were still in the office the next day because <laughs> you still had shit to do. You know, <laughs> you still had bands to push. You still had radio stations to call and, you know, uh, retail companies to call and press to call. Like, you know, you could be hang- hung over, but you're still at work, you know? And I think that was, that's, that, that was one of those things where it's just kind of like, man, you know, Mark Abramson was wasted that last night, but yeah, he's there with a, you know, ice pack on his head and he's got coffee, but he's on the phone with, you know, WAAF right now trying to sell, you know, the new Fear Factory song. Like it was, that was, I think that was kind of one of those parts of the deal, of the record deal that was never explicitly really put into, uh, kind of put on paper, if you will. Is that like, yeah, you get this kind of deal, you know, this many records or you get this kind of publishing deal, this kind of merch deal. But it was never like, but more than anything, you get a, such a dedicated team who is all about this fucking music. Like this yeah. isn't just this isn't just a job for anybody, not one person, you know, and we went there and we lived it and we bled for it. And we just, you know, it, it, that was always that was always what was so awesome for me was mm. just that that vibe of like. It's up to us, you know. Yeah, this absolutely. isn't, you know, we don't have these crazy Sony budgets and Warner Brothers budgets. It's like we got to figure this out, and we have, you know, ten dollars and some pocket lint. All right, what can we do? You know, like it was, it was a lot of that sort of thing, you know. But more than anything, everybody there had had just as much passion for the bands as the bands did for making the music, and I think that was a that was always a component in the. Um, it was felt like that was, that was kind of a variable in the equation yeah. that no one ever really gave a lot of uh, 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 kind of kind of credence towards. You know, it's like it was always kind of just a known thing. Mm. But it's like when when you look at like we were saying, like kind of like building the house. You know, it's like it it's a lot of times people won't think that that is really what the foundation of the house really was was the passion of the employees that work there. You know, and uh, and I think that was that's an important aspect that that a lot of times gets overlooked. Yeah, I mean, because of to, the nickelbacks and all that sort of stuff. To package that point and put a ribbon on it, I'll ask you mm. what I asked Mark Abramson yesterday, and it speaks exactly to your point is, so Typo eventually went gold after like a two-year campaign. And this is a mm-hmm. couple of years before you joined as an intern. But yep. my question what would, would be, is there any other label, major or indie, that would know how to handle and push and optimize the opportunities for Typo Negative? You know, uh, no most likely not in the set, not in the same way. And, and I think typo was also, <clears throat> it was also a really weird, perfect storm of sorts, you know, 
um, in that it wasn't, it's not like it was carnivore, which was very straight ahead, hardcore punk kind of vibe. And and it kind of just, it it hit this really weird kind of sensibility that was almost joy division ish, but not exactly, but it wasn't. So it was, it was like this really, it slid in just in between this kind of pop new wave kind of thing. And, and it just kind of, it, it hit, it, it just hit a sweet spot. And I don't think if Relapse had them, I don't think if Century Meteor, Nuclear Blast at the time, or, or a lot of those labels, I think if, if any of them really had Typo, I don't think it necessarily would have worked the way it did at Roadrunner, you know? Um, and that was, you know, and, and it's funny because, again, it's like it really was a perfect storm. I mean, he was in Playgirl and, like, I mean, all of this stuff. Not for nothing. I sold a copy of that Playgirl. I actually found it not too long ago. I sold the thing for $400. Like, people are still rabid over that stuff, you know. But but that's kind of it. It just it happened to work in such a really weird way. But it's, it's funny because when you put the shoe on that other foot, um, there's plenty of bands that either Roadrunner passed on or maybe just didn't get because they got outbid or whatever. And there's like, you know, the stories about System of a Down and Corn and Deftones and people are like, oh my God, I can't believe Roadrunner didn't get Deftones. But I'm like, okay, n- yeah, but if we did, would we have been able to make them successful? Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to Deftones being on Madonna's label through Warner Brothers on Maverick, you know, like they had money and power and influence and all these, you know, and, you know, so if, if Roadrunner had gotten Deftones, would the world know Deftones the way we know them now? You know, so it's kind of that that sort of, uh, uh, you know, equal but opposite sort of sort of scenario. It's like, yes, we did well with Typo Negative. Would other labels possibly have done better? Probably not. Mm. But at the same time, you know, if we had gotten corn, would we have been able to do that same sort of thing? I think it's a lot of it's to do with the process, isn't it? So, like, I know... My Chemical Romance is another example of, of one that got missed. But I think the thing is, when the vetting process for a new signing came about, it's usually, okay, everyone, everyone's got to have a buy-in. I think it was Jonas, it's got to be Case, it's got to be whoever's the A&R champion at that point. And right. you said it yourself, like, would they have done the best for that band? If one person in that chain isn't all in, the answer is right. no. Right. And it, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? Because that, as we say, when the house is built, everyone's there making sure that everything can happen for everyone as much as possible. Right. There wasn't like strictly, and I can't remember who I was saying this to, but there wasn't really one role. Even if you were the marketing guy, even if you were the street team guy, there's right. bound to be some instances where you're actually, fucking, the, the distributor's factory is shut down. We've got to drive out to fucking upstate and we need to like package these, blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> You don't got to tell me. <laughs> I have plenty of those kinds of stories. You know? Yeah. But if one part of that chain, one link of that chain isn't quite galvanized correctly, you're not going to give the, you're not pushing the bands as much as you, you possibly could. And right. that's and that, built in by design. Right. And that was something I learned. I, I saw a lot when I, uh, when I was working there full time, like in the 2000s was I, I started to see people who were kind of like, Oh, I don't like that band. I don't think they're that good. So I'm not really going to put a lot of effort into it. And I, that, that was the mentality that I, I never liked. And I was always really pissed off at. And while I didn't at the time, obviously I was, I was much younger, so I didn't really have the experience, but I, I was always just kind of like, why are we not doing this for this band? Why aren't we pushing them hard? And a lot of times it'd be like, well, that band's a pain in the ass or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's not up for us to determine. Like our job is to, push these bands Mm. and as the street team guy you know i have kids who are clamoring for promotional items to hand out because they were so ecstatic about our bands and you know to be like oh sorry like we're not doing anything for them you know it's like 
it, it was it was one of those things where, you know, I, I would just kind of be like, wow, like, you know, we're all supposed to be on the same team. Why do I feel like at times we're on very weird opposite mentality levels, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think but back then, you know, in the 80s and, and the, in the 90s, you know, you had a very dedicated group of metalheads that worked there you know you had people who rode their bicycle to work and you know you had you know you had like a lot of that sort of stuff where you know everyone you know everyone went to every show you know every you went to you went to your shows you went to roadrunner shows you went to metal bleach shows you went to everybody's shows everybody went to everybody's shows and and that was uh i think that was a a snapshot in time that'll never really um come back i mean never you know it'll it'll never quite be like that ever again and uh i i I was only there kind of for the tail end of that sort of thing um but it was it was such a great feeling to just be like surrounded by by metal surrounded by metal heads who love metal i feel like there's two sort of catalysts in the last sort of 20 years of metal changing maybe it's i don't know maybe i'm just off the the head one's roadrunner being bought out by one and all those people getting sacked the second is Zach Wilde stopping drinking. Something changed that day. <laughs> right. Something suddenly, changed. suddenly the earth just kind of slowed down a little. Uh, to me, it's actually not Warner Brothers. It was when Universal bought half of Roadrunner. That was that to me was the big change. That was we'll that was that. the catalyst. We'll that to me was the catalyst. Uh, yeah. That was that was when I I really noticed uh, the shift in the paradigm, and 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 especially the shift in the way people there were thinking about stuff and yeah. and it was it was a little from my perspective it was it was kind of gross um because it, it it was almost like uh this vibe of kind of like you know money 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 you know and it was almost kind of like oh uh, like like okay if you want to do that in your own time like that's fine but like you're doing that like in the middle of a meeting and that's creepy and gross you know <laughs> and and i thought that was kind of that was kind of it it's like once that really happened i i that's when i felt the paradigm shift in a, in yeah. a huge huge way you know um but yeah i mean since i wasn't there for the warner brothers thing i mean i i you know when it happened i i kind of felt like roadrunner was already sort of kind of petering out anyway um you know, but then once Warner bought them, I was just kind of like, all right, either they're going to. So that was the thing when, when Universal did uh, bought half of Roadrunner, um, they were like, look, we'll help you with Slipknot and and Nickelback because um, those are the ones we want. Obviously, they're the biggest bands, um, but they were like everything else. You guys know what you're doing. So keep doing it. And if you need our help, then cool. And that was, that was the good part about it because we were like, oh, wow, fucking kick ass, you know, like we can, we can kind of go to them for, for, you know, additional support or whatever it is, you know, maybe, you know, we can't get that one band on the radio. We really want to get them on the radio. Universal's got better radio people. They can push it a little, you know, there was, there was a feeling of like, okay, cool. They're not coming in and just being like, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're cool, you're fired, you know, it, it, there was always kind of that feeling of like, is that what they're going to do? But then they were like, no, you, you guys know metal. We don't Yeah, go do your metal thing. That's fair. That, they would have wanted the indie credibility. That's probably why they fucking bought it in the first place. Right. 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 I think so too. And, and also I think they saw that like bands like Nickelback and Slipknot, like that there was, they were very much anomalies um in the in the in the whole in the scope of things you know i don't think they were looking at like kill switch engage like hmm this is this is something we need to look at you know they they looked at the slipknot numbers they looked at the the nickelback numbers and they were like this is this is a worthwhile investment mm-hmm. you know and and i think that's really what they saw you know um but yeah i think that was really but but again it's like i felt i felt that there was a a definite 
um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shift. Kind of like a, yeah, a, like a mental shift, you know, it went from the idea of kind of like, like kind of like the idea of when you are doing something in your house as a hobby and then suddenly Facebook decides to buy you or something like that, you know? And it's like, suddenly you're like, Oh, I was doing this and making $40 a week on this, but now Facebook just bought me for, you know, $80 million. And so now whatever, you know, it's like, you could, you know, there, there was definitely a, 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 a mentality shift that happened. Yeah. And, and for people like me who are, you know, kind of on the lower end of things, because street marketing was kind of what I call the redheaded stepchild. We were, we were the kids table, you know, we weren't retail and we weren't, radio and we weren't press you know we were you know i dealt with literally the people who were buying our records you yeah. know but because i wasn't really dealing with um you know professionals in a way um you know we were kind of pushed to the side in that regard and so because i kind of was it was almost like you know i i looked at it from a certain point of view of just like wow like it, it's almost literally like oh my god like you used to be cool <laughs> you know you used to be cool like what happened and it's like you know Oh, suddenly you became a hipster and now you use mustache wax and carry around an old school typewriter. And like, suddenly you think you're cool. And like, you know, like that kind of thing where you're like, wait, yesterday you were wearing a Slayer shirt and you, you know, were getting, you know, a pentagram tattooed on your chest. And now you're like, oh yeah, twist up my beam, my mustache. You know, and you're like, wait, what? And that's, that was kind of my thing was that for me, it was so, it, it, it just, it was such a, cold water in the face kind of thing where mm. it's just like you're just kind of like shocked into seeing kind of watching the change happen and being like i like like do i have a part in this you know like yeah, that yeah. was kind of really where it was for me but how are you how are you doing for time just because i want to do i'm great dude about- i don't care <laughs> i got to talk to you till eight in the morning i don't really care excellent um, <laughs> so I'll, uh, let's see with this chronologically so doing gonna do a bit of signposting here your background is kind of extensively recorded in the X-Men podcast. So if you just go onto Spotify and you type in Rocoli, which you can copy and paste from the title of this video or this whatever you're <laughs> listening to this on, um, a lot of that stuff is dealt with. So I'll try not to retread on, on all that stuff and I'll try and expand on what was discussed. Sure. Um, you start off with, is it Street? Um, shit, what's it called? Street Sense? What's the first role before you Street-wise? get the Streetwise, that's it. Um, before the internship at Roadrunner, so when you get into Roadrunner, sort of, uh, you have it a little bit, a little bit backwards, but that's okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, so, so basically, what happened? I interned at Roadrunner in '95. Yeah, I think from like '95 to '98, I interned at wow. Roadrunner, okay. and then I moved to Los Angeles uh, right after I graduated college, and that's when I was just kind of, I, I, I was. You know, I had my zine, I had my fanzine, Shock to the System. So I really thought that I was going to move to L.A. And, you know, I knew all these people and it was going to be great. And I was going to da 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 And it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And Streetwise had just started up when I was living out here in 98, 99. And they had gotten Slipknot and System and um, who else? Uh, Slipknot System and Static X. Okay. And those were the bands that they started. They really made big just because of the fact that, you know, at the time, email wasn't a thing that everybody had. So, you know, they were able to kind of tap into a very uh, uh, that was another perfect storm where they just were able to tap into the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so streetwise. So then when I moved back to Jersey and New York in 2000, the very beginning of 2000, that's when I started working at Roadrunner full time. Right. OK. Okay. Okay. The chronology is correct now. So when you yeah. first interned at Roadrunner, who are you working mm-hmm. under? 
Um, I was working under Sophie Diamantis. She was the head of PR um, at the time, and she was super awesome. Fucking love her. Uh, and then uh, this lovely woman, Jamie Roberts, came in, um, and she was, wasn't really a metalhead. Uh, she was more into a lot of like more, I would say more indie rock, if you will. Okay. Um, but I think that's, that's why they sort of hired her was because they were like, you know, they were like, we kind of need a broader perspective mm-hmm. than just, you know, like, yes, we can get into Metal Maniacs. Yes, we can get into Kerrang. We can get into Metal Hammer. Like, these are all the places we can get into. What we need is we need the New York Times. We need Spin. We need Rolling Stone. We need somebody who understands that language in a way. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, you know, like I said, it's like to get, you know, metal bands and fanzines, that's, you know, fish in a bucket, you know, to, to get, you know, uh, typo negative on the cover of Metal Edge, that's kind of a given, you know, so what we were trying to do is, re- I think what they were trying to do is really try to broaden out the press angle of it. And, uh, and so I was working under Jamie for a, a good long time, and she worked there for a really long time. And uh, yeah, so so she was uh, um, so I was working under her, and then uh, when I moved back to Jersey, uh, because I stayed in contact with her, we we're very good friends. Um, when I uh, when I moved back to Jersey, and, and Roadrunner offered me one of three jobs, they were like, "You have three jobs, like pick one." I was like, "Oh fuck, that's cool." Really? Like, that okay. that's never happened to me since. <laughs> you know, they were like, "You can either be in the touring department, in the publicity department, or in retail." And I was like, "Well, I've already done PR, and retail doesn't really interest me." So I was like, "All right, cool." I'll do the tour thing but the funny thing was that when i was living in la in la i had a friend's uh, t-shirt company called room 13 and i had gotten them on ozfest and um i'd helped get them on ozfest and i told the owner that i was just going to move back to jersey work a shit job and then head out on tour with them on on ozfest and work their booth and then go back to la and that was my goal was okay mm-hmm. i'm going to do this and Jamie was the one who was like, look, dude, like, do you really want to be traveling in a van and do it? Like, she's like, you have a chance to really do something right now and do something, you know, that's, that's bigger than that, okay. you know? Cause I was very much on the fence. Like, oh man, do I really want to take this full-time job? I can't go on Ozfest, da, da, da. you know? Um, and she was the one who really convinced me that like, no, this is, this is what you should do. Awesome. But the whole time I was there, I was like, how do I get back to LA? <laughs> how do I get back to LA? Because I don't like cold weather and I hate the rain. And they how had the LA, LA office at that point, didn't they? They did. And that was the funny thing was that I was always vying for a job there. And they were like, sorry, man, there's nothing. Sorry, there's nothing. Like I would just work out of their office just for nothing. Like I was, just because I was friends with everybody there. And I, I'd be like, come on, come on, come on. And then right when I moved back to Jersey, they moved the publicist out to LA. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what the hell is that? I've been trying to do this for the last year and a half. So it was, it was one of those things where I was like, I can't believe it. But, you know, it, everything has to happen the way it has to happen. So, um, you know, so I came in and I, that's when I became the tour coordinator for, for Roadrunner. What, let's compare the, the times then, because mm-hmm. for your internship, 95 through to 98, we've got Typo has just gone gold. Max has just left Sepultura. And there's this sort of mm-hmm. period where they're trying to diversify, as you alluded to. And they've got the flagship acts that are churning out the goods. But mm-hmm. I don't think there's something that's really resonant there yet. I don't think there's there's no no one smashing out of the park with gold records yet until say the Slipknot until you come back and then when you come back, it is post Slipknot Ozfest nine 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 for sure for sure that it must have been a massive difference in vibe between those two. Bits. Well, it it was actually kind of funny that you say it like that because so when I was there in ninety five to ninety ninety eight, um, yeah, Max left. Uh, you know, Roots was fucking ridiculous. 
um, uh, who else was out? Uh, you know, um, I, I wasn't there for Obsolete for Fear Factory, but like we, you know, but um, uh, Ozfest '97 was like Roadrunner rules the Ozfest because we had like five or six bands on that first year. So uh, I was doing a lot of that sort of stuff where it was a lot of baby bands, Cold Chamber and and VOD and, and all these kinds of bands. But then we still had, you know, you had Machine Head who was kind of like, you know. Not that I think they're a grade B band, but like, you know, when you had like your typo negative, which is like a big band, you know, then you had like kind of Fear Factory, which was bigger. And then you had sort of Machine Head mm-hmm. underneath that, you know. Um, so we were, I was just calling fanzines and stuff like that all the time. It was just calling fanzines, calling like local press, you know. So for me, it was so much fun because everyone was just like, talk a cold chamber sure you know and it was just it was it was kind of like it was so weirdly easy in a weird way um which was which was really cool but we were in a different office too we were way downtown um so it was a little for lack of a better term it was a pretty dingy office you know um because that was kind of where they really uh uh that was kind of roadrunner 2.0 was that office not lafayette but the one after no lafayette is the one i was was talking okay yeah uh uh no sorry uh Yes. So, sorry. Sorry. So they were on Lafayette. I forgot about that. Sorry. I worked at another place on Lafayette. Uh, they were on mm-hmm. Lafayette and then they moved to Broadway mm-hmm. to no uh, shit. I can't remember 562 something like that Broadway. And then when I uh, moved back to Jersey, when I moved back to New York and Jersey um, in 2000, we moved from that office to the 902 Broadway one that was right. more uptown. Um, and that was kind of cool because it was, it, it was, it was really kind of neat because it was almost like being a kid moving from, you know, your parents' two-bedroom apartment or one-bedroom apartment to a house in the suburbs where you're just like, there's so much room, you know? It was just like, it, it really felt like we moved up. Um, but I do know that that was because of Slipknot. That was because of that that post-Slipknot money. Because, wow. it was, you know, it's funny because when, when Slipknot first happened, this is actually a really kind of a goofy story because uh, I was working at a place called Andy Gold Management and we were managing um, uh, Static X and Typo and uh, mm-hmm. Ultra Spank and all these bands. And uh, System of a Down came out and, and everyone was so happy that they got signed because the scene was super tight. Everybody was loved each other in the scene. And they sold like 2,500 records the first week and everybody was ecstatic. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Oh my God, Armenian band does da 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 And then Static X came out and they sold like 5,500 records. And, you know, it was like a friendly, friendly rivalry. So we're like, ha take that system. And then these nine retards from Iowa come out and they sell like 14,000 records their first week. And we we're all just like, <laughs> uh, wait, what, what just happened? And so, uh, the first time I got to see them was at Ozfest 99 mm-hmm. and it was the very last day of the tour and they went on at 9am and the entrance that me and some of my people came in on was the opposite side of where they were playing. So yeah. it's just me and like 4,000 kids just running like sprinting just to try to get there because they were only playing 20 minutes they only had those 20 minute sets and um and so we and i still have pictures from from being in the photo pit from that show but uh but it was just like it was maniacal it was because because at the time there was no youtube no anything so all you could do was read people's reviews of slipknot of how insane the shows were and so we were literally, and it was like Slipknot, Static, Rob Zombie, Slipknot, Static, Rob. Like these were like the big bands that year. And but every, you know, but we were the last show. So we had no idea what this Slipknot band was all about. We had no idea. And then we saw it and we were all just like, holy shit. Holy shit. Did, I don't know if I talked about my, my, my meeting, me meeting Slipknot in, in LA on Doc's podcast. 
Um, no. So Static X played uh, on uh, October 30th, 1998, I think it was, um, at the at the Roxy. And uh, being a Kiss fan, and, and I know they're huge Kiss fans, uh, they came out dressed as Kiss for Halloween. And I was like, wow, great. And so I was having a grand time at the show. And a couple of weeks prior, um, a guy, a buddy of mine, Tom Ty, who used to work at Roadrunner, he used to do retail. He was like, hey, we got this band called Slipknot. I think you're, you're going to really dig it. And so I was like, all right, cool. And he's like, I'm going to send you a shirt. Okay, great. Shirt said Slipknot. Uh, back had the barcode and said people equal shit. And I was like, fucking sold. I'm in. So I'm wearing the shirt at the Static X show. And all of a sudden, I feel two hands grab me and throw me into the wall. And I'm like, what? And at first, I thought it might be friends of mine. But I was like, that was really aggressive. Like, I don't think I know these people. And it's these two guys. And they're in my face. And they're like, where the fuck did you get that shirt? And I'm like, what? My buddy at Roadrunner sent it. Like, what the fuck? And they're like, Oh man, we're sorry. We thought you might be in a band that was trying to rip our shit off. Uh, my name is Sean, and this is Corey. We're in Slipknot, and I was like, <laughs> "Okay, like I just love the shirt. I just think the people equal shit thing is great." And they're like, "Here, here's our cassette sampler. We're in the studio right now." And I'm like, "Okay." And I just remember being with my obviously now ex, uh, and I put it in her tape deck, and I was, I it was like, I think it was like Eyeless and Spit It Out, maybe mm-hmm. something like that, and or and and Sick maybe. And I just remember listening to it. And I remember just driving the whole, like she was driving and I'm just like, and she's like, what's the matter? I'm like, you don't get it. This is going to change things. This is going to change things. There is something seriously demented about this band because it's like the, you know, the, the album artwork where they're all just kind of standing there. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, there is something seriously wrong with this band, but this music is going to fucking flip people out. People are going to go ballistic. And she was she wasn't really a metalhead. She liked corn and stuff like that. But like when I heard this, I was like, this this is we're seeing something new. We are seeing something different. This is way this is going to be insane. And sure enough, they did Ozfest. It was crazy. Then they came to Europe and the UK and they set that place on fire. And then uh, when I started working was right when they got when I started working at Roadrunner was right when they had got back from their UK tour. Right. They were just the kings of everything the kings of destruction and and that's when i kind of really met them and that's when i told sean and Corey about that story and they're like yo that was you no way but that was really the first time i met them was them fucking throwing me into a wall <laughs> so when I, that's a that's a roadrunner story you won't really hear from anybody else. <laughs> uh when we so you got you. Uh, I'll stick to the. I'll stick to the actual questions. So when, when you join, rejoin, you go as a touring coordinator. So what? How does that differ from differ from a, a tour manager? Because I imagine there is a line drawn at some point, and I think the tour manager is more band management, external aligned, and a touring coordinator is label aligned. How does this? Yeah. Work so basically, uh, so my my boss Harlan was the. Um, I guess he was not, not tour manager. He definitely wasn't the tour manager. He was kind of like the head of touring, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I was his coordinator. So I was basically like his assistant, but I wasn't like an assistant in the way of like, Hey, get me coffee and get me a bagel. It was, I was handling all the guest lists, all the right. ticket buys, uh, making sure posters got to all the venues. I was doing all of that sort of stuff. So yeah. I was in a really weird way, like one of the most important people at Roadrunner without realizing I was because I was the guy who everybody had to come to and go, Rolling Stone is, you know, coming to the show. I need tickets. And I'd have to be like either a like I, I was the gatekeeper, which was yeah. really kind of cool. And it put me in such a funny position because like I would uh, 
you know, with a New York show, especially because they were always so chaotic. Um, you know, we always had such a huge guest list and all these kinds of things. And I was always the guy who's like, I got to cut your list. And you'd see people like, no, like what? I'll give you anything. And I'm just like, mm, this is an interesting game I'm playing. But like, you know, I would I would have like 10 extra VIP passes in my pocket. And then somebody like Jonas would come up to me like, bro, I have a guy here. Do you, can we do anything? I'd be like, hang on. And I like run away for like five minutes. I'd smoke a cigarette and then come back and be like, you're lucky I actually found these, you know, <laughs> it's like that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> Uh, and they'd be like oh my god thank you and i'm like yeah i still have like seven left so whatever <laughs> you know so I, w- I would do that sort of thing it was but that was that was a great it's funny it was a great gig in that um it put me in touch with literally every promoter in the country which was mm-hmm. awesome so i could go to a concert anywhere and just get in no problem but that also kind of fueled how spoiled i got when i came to go into shows gotta be like no vip what's wrong with you you know because i was constantly walking around with like laminates and all access passes because i was there before the show i was there after the show you know so it was just and i always had to run you know figure out like all the backstage area so i could get from one place to another very quickly you know so i didn't have to go through the crowds and stuff didn't get hassled by security so i got i got a little uh, concert uh, uh, spoiled, if you will, when it comes to the, when it when it was that because it was just like it was it was literally I, I knew every security guard in New York, you know, <laughs> it was just one of those things where I'd be like, you know, I knew a guy at Hammerstein Ballroom, and when Tool fi- first came out with their Enema stuff, and everybody was going batch crazy for Tool, yeah, they were selling. Uh, we were able to get like. Uh, we were able to kind of have a little ticket buy because I knew the, the ticketing lady from, from uh, it wasn't Live Nation, it was like a Nederlander or whatever promotional company is. But, um, <clears throat> and I was like, hey, you know, people here want to go. And they're like, okay, here's, you know, let me know how many tickets. This is how much it costs. And we got it for the base price and all that. And uh, I ended up selling my tickets for 600 bucks each because the security guard was like, no, I'll just walk in. <laughs> I'll just walk in. All right, cool. Like that works, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was that, that, so that's basically what I did. So it was, it was me handling the guest lists for everybody. And that's, that is what led into the street team thing. It's it, your role was everything that wasn't sound and lighting effectively when the, when the van pulls up. So yeah. You get thrown at OzFest. Now, <laughs> this is where my research took a bit of a dive because uh, I immediately started looking at the Pantera set list from that year. And it's like, it's just fucking, there's something about it, man. I don't know where, I don't know what it is, but when you look at like Woodstock 99 through to sort of like 2001, 2002, maybe like the convention for the, the front of house guy is to capture, maybe to mic the crowd when they're capturing mm-hmm. live footage or something because it's just fucking going off. But, right. For some of those who, for some of those who might be a little bit tuned to remember Ozfest in its prime, what? And this is more of a marketing question than a vibe question. Mm-hmm. What impact does Ozfest have? What was it a vehicle for in those days, and why was it important to Roadrunner that they had acts on there? Was how big a deal was it? It was massive. It was absolutely massive. Uh, I mean, especially with that first year. You know, we had five bands on. So it was it really we had T-shirts that said, like, Roadrunner rules the Ozfest, you know, and like Black Sabbath Master of Reality letters, you know. Um, so it was so huge that we were such a massive part of that that show um, because, yeah, you had your Pantera like that year. You had what Pantera, you had Marilyn Manson, you had um, fuck, I can't even remember half the bands that were on that show. Jesus Christ. Uh, but, you know, you just had so many bands that were on there and a lot of them were major label smallish bands so we were the ones you know i don't think there was any like relapse bands on there i don't i highly doubt there was any century media bands you know because they just they didn't have the money to buy these buy their bands on but after especially after the 
uh, typo negative thing happened, you know, that was because that was such a big deal at the time. Uh, it really, it really put, it really kind of blew the doors open for Roadrunner to kind of not to be like, Hey, we're here. Like, you know, our shit don't smell, but it was, it was kind of like, it, it really kind of was like, Hey, like typo negative is like, the super big brother who's like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, you know what? Me and my other boys are coming in this thing too. And it's like, all right, cool. Come on guys. And everyone's kind of like, yeah, there's a lot of them. So, okay, cool. We'll let them in, you know, but then following that year, you know, uh, was 98, which unfortunately I didn't get to see because they only did it on the East coast and the Midwest. And I had moved to LA, so we didn't yeah. get that tour. Um, but I mean, that was, you know, Soulfly and, and all of these, you know, all of these, uh, kind of new metal sort of bands kind of getting in on that. But again, it's like 97 was cold chamber, you know? So it's like, that was a whole new crowd, a new musical mentality that was starting to be very pervasive, you know, which ended up becoming new metal, you know? And it's, it started right there, you know, so you had cold chamber next to VOD next to machine head next to Mm. fear factor, you know, it was such a diverse, you know, kind of time for metal in that regard. And I think that was really what it was. And I, I, you know, and nobody, you know, Ozfest had only happened at that one show in San Bernardino in like 96, Mm -hmm. you know? So the fact that we were able to kind of do a Lollapalooza for metal was such a huge deal in and of itself is the interesting thing for me is like bands would or labels rather would pay on to ozfest right which Mm -hmm. sounds like it sounds disingenuous but if you think about it it's just taking the booking function so normally there's one person at a festival who goes i think i know what the cutting edge here is here's my lineup let's try and book them it completely inverts it and goes let's make effectively a concert compilation of what's in vogue now who decides that whoever whatever the labels want to push and right. that'll so that, that whatever Ozfest lineup was any given year is presumably what the labels of the time thought yeah, was, was their priorities exactly. And I, I yeah. don't think people realize that they just think it's like oh it's a money game. It's like well sure it is it's a business, but right. if you got to look at it as a standing time for that year, and you got to understand right. that it's more of a showcase than anything else. Right. Even think about it. Right. Ninety eight. Ninety eight had Incubus. You know, uh, and they had Incubus, and Incubus was on Epic. You know, it's like, so, and, but people were still kind of like, okay, this Incubus band is okay. You know, now you would never think of Incubus even remotely being on Ozfest, mm. you know, but it's like, but that was kind of it. It was all the priority bands because if you were going to buy onto it, it was, it was the ultimate investment because unless you were on the main stage or the headliner of the second stage, you didn't get paid, mm. you know? So you had to, you had to bring it every day. And that's what I would tell bands when we were, when I was on tour with them on Ozfest was like, look, when you're on stage, there are no friends. You guys are all fighting for that same dollar. So you, you know, if you're bored right now, fucking walk through the crowd, man, like fucking start making some bands, grab some CDs and see if you can sell them by hand. Like, you know, you've got to make every, every dollar count. That's why, you know, in the later years, when you had like your streetwise stage and all these kinds of things, you know, um, so many companies were giving money to Streetwise left, you know, just hand over fist yeah. and Streetwise wasn't doing anything for them. They, they had no control over their street teamers. They had tons of product that never went anywhere. And in the end, what ended up happening, even though these labels were like, yeah, we're pushing this band, we're pushing this band, all this money would get used up and nobody, 
the, no no records would sell mm-hmm. you know so that what that's kind of what led to the sort of implosion of of all of that of, of street gaming and everything like that was just the fact that it went from being like these are the bands we're pushing these are the bands that mean something to us that we are investing in heavily you know and if again if you're a roadrunner yeah man you gotta make every dollar count mm-hmm. you know so if roadrunner is going to be putting soulfly on it yeah, we're putting our fucking, we're putting our money, we're putting our attitude, we're putting our dedication, our passion, our livelihoods, like everything was on the line. Like this wasn't some, you know, you know, this wasn't just some baby band that we were just, you know, stuffing, you know, just kind of, oh, just give them 80 million dollars and just let them do whatever they want. You know, when it came to Roadrunner at that time, it was really just, you know, we had to make sure that that everything worked properly. That's why that year with Slipknot, you know, it was you know, it was, they just gave 180% every show Mm -hmm. that it became the thing of like, you know, any band that played after them was like, okay, so we got to really bring this shit. Like, you know, like we were going to bring a hundred percent, they brought 860%. So we got to figure something out, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was really what, what it was all about was just, it wasn't so much just a money game, but it was, it really, it was in a really weird way. It was the ultimate gambling. You know, because you're like, okay, it's 90 grand to get on the second stage to buy your way on. And then you still need a tour bus. That's, let's just say 40, 50 grand for the summer. You still need, you know, all of these different things between merch and buying ads, uh, you know, in every market that it's going to be and buying radio spots in every market and doing all this promotional stuff. You know, before you even hit the stage and play a note, you're already half a million dollars in, you know? So it became this thing of like, hey, if you're going to do this, like you gotta, you gotta really push it. Like, you know, not everyone is, is Ozzy or Pantera or Marilyn Manson where they were just kind of like, yeah, no, we'll just do whatever. And just gotta, whatever. It's like, no, if you're Cole Chamber, like you better be out in that crowd. You better be talking to people. Like, you know, and I think that was the really important part about that. And that's why after Ozfest 99 with Slipknot, not that it changed the, the mentality or anything, but I think that was really when you saw it, it, it's almost like, you know, when you're, when you're, running down a hill and then you realize your legs are moving way too fast. You can't really control them. Like that's kind of what happened after Ozfest 99. It was like, Roadrunner was like, holy shit. Like this is crazy. And it was just, it was so much so fast that I think that people really didn't know. Not, not, I want to say they didn't know how to handle it, but it was, it was, it really was, it was just so much so fast. Mm. And, and, and that, you know, that, that did lead to a lot of, sort of bad things along the way. Um, but at the same time, it really, you know, when people are like, oh, slip, you know, Nickelback save, save Roadrunner. And I'm like, you know, you can't look at it like that. It's like, you know, if you want to look at it like that, then you could say Typo save Roadrunner and then Slipknot save Roadrunner and then Nickelback save Roadrunner and then Stone Sour and then Kill Switch. You know, if, if you're going to say like, oh, they, they got saved. It's like, no, there's it's a multi, like like we were saying, it's, it's a fucking house, you know, you yeah. can't just, ju- you know, be like, well, the only reason you got this house is because of the bathroom. You know, it's like, no, there's all sorts of other things going on here that we need to fucking deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's, so, if, if no one's seen any Ozfest footage, just fucking get on YouTube now. It's, it's something special. And you got to remember this, like it's pre-internet and it's pre, this was like your day. This is your day of the fucking year. Yeah. Like, I've got like, was- before the pandemic, I had like three days of the year where it's like, I don't have a phone, a wallet or keys. I've only got my health. And then I just right. go off and that's like, that's my, that's me pressing F5 and refreshing my tab for the year. <laughs> right. That's right. what Ozfest was. 
Well, and also, you know, being a metal fan here, reading Kerrang, reading Metal Hammer, meeting, reading uh, 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 Enemy and, and a lot of that stuff, you know, um, I could only dream about going to someplace like Download. You know, I could only dream about a, a festival like on that scale. You know, the only thing we really had was Lollapalooza and maybe Warp Tour, you know, but like when Ozfest came out, like that's when you're just like, you know, I remember talking to somebody in England, uh, one of one of the people at Roadrunner England, they were just like, man, you're so lucky you get Ozfest. And I'm like, we're, we're lucky. You guys have Download and Grass Pop and, 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 and Vakken and, and, but like to them, they were like, no, nah, you're, you're the lucky, you know? And that was nice. Dude, Vakken is still a dream of mine, dude. I pray I can make it out there one day. Like I, me and my wife, we were actually uh, in 2020, we were, we were like, you know what? This is the year. This is the year we do it. This is the year we do it. And like, of course, like two months later, it's like, okay, or we don't do it ever. Um, I tell you fucking stories of Vakken. Like this is, oh, like you know what? I, well. You know what I love? I love that there's a Vakken, not a documentary, but just like a little bit of a documentary on Amazon Prime. You know, and it's just like I watch it all the time just because I'm just like, <sighs> you know, and I know so many people are like, oh, yeah, no, I've gone. But like I've gotten to do like 70,000 tons of metal, the, the metal oh, wow. cruise. Yeah. And that was like and it's it's funny because it's like when I do it, it's almost like I'm there with so many drunk Norwegians and drunk Canadians and drunk Swiss and drunk Swedes and and, and, and drunk Italians. And and everyone's wearing just like their festival shirt. You know, so it's like, you know, the Germans are wearing their Vakken shirts and, you know, the Norwegians are wearing their fucking their festival shirts. And, you know, it's just and you just look at it and everyone's just like, man, like you got to go to Ozfest 97. Like, that's fucking crazy. And I'm like, dude, you got to see Maiden and Kiss on the same bill. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but it was like that was that was the, the best part about it was just like, you know, just to be able to, to <laughs> have people kind of weirdly be jealous. Of, of us having Ozfest. It was so bizarre back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So let's move forward a little bit. Sure. Um, as you migrate into the road crew stuff. So mm. let's uh, let's really contextualize this, right? So sure. road crew as a function, I described it yesterday as you took the word of mouth function of metal and militarized it. That was the mm. idea of a road crew. <laughs> I look at it like I kind of cultized it, you know, really weird. <laughs> 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 kind of turned into a really weird road cult. Yeah, yeah. So, what's the what's the landscape of, of street teams at this point? Is it in vogue? Do all labels have them, or is it silly, fairly innovative? How much is outsourced? Okay, so great question. So basically, when Streetwise came about, um, it, it created this street marketing uh, uh, deluge, if you will. So you had Streetwise, you had a company called Band Bitch, you had Loudside. And you had, yeah, I know, right? What the, that was my friend John Nelson's company. And I was just really, I was like, really, dude, Band Bitch? And when people like Street Team would be like, I'm on Band Bitch. I'm like, oh, that's the worst name ever. <laughs> but anyway, you know, but but they were they were the premier kind of ones that were out there. And because of the fact that they were premier, it was all you saw at the time. Yeah. And that's why so many labels and, and managers and everything became so obsessed with it. So when I was doing the tour, when I was tour coordinator, I would put um, the street teamers on, on our guest list. And the street team was basically run by the retail department. But the retail department already had their own job. Like, so they, so somebody would just be like, hey, I'm a street teamer. Can I get tickets? They're like, yeah, here's tickets. And I'd be like, and I remember being like, um, A, I could use those tickets for somebody else. B, who the fuck is this kid? And C, I'm at these shows because I'm the tour coordinator. I'm there before the shows and after. So I don't see any of these kids doing anything. And so that was kind of my thing was I was like, you know, this is this. I feel like we're wasting our 
resources. We're making these resources. We're supposedly sending them out to people and nobody's doing anything. And then we're on top of it. We're rewarding kids with tickets and VIP. And I'm like, why are we doing this? And I was very much into, you know, the, the whole street team uh, philosophy and the whole mentality of it because, um, because I was, I was always just on the ground. I was always the dude on the, you know, I'm the guy in the pit. I'm the guy crowd surfing and stage diving. But then afterwards, I'm the dude who's got samplers in my cargo shorts pocket. And I'm outside like, hey, dude, here you go. Here you go. And I would watch the way that these kids would street team. And they would just be like, here, here. And I'm like, really? Like, people are coming out of a Slayer show. And that's how you're responding to them. You know, and I'd be like, hey, stupid, come here. Here, you look stupid. Come here. Get this. You know, like, I would just say stuff like that and just kind of be... I mean, if you're an outsider looking in, it's probably obnoxious, but like, I was just like, you know, like, that's how you talk to people mm. after a concert, you know, after a Slayer show, people are deaf and they're stoned and they're drunk and they're full of adrenaline. Really? You're going to There's a five go. second window where everyone's bottled. That's exactly that's- it. Yeah. And that's when you can get them. But it's like, but if you're going to be like, whatever, I'm like, okay, like you're not like, that's not how this is done. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I ended up writing a, a proposal to Case and Jonas and saying, like, look, dude, this is this is where I come from. This is this is my vibe. This is the thing that I can do. Mm-hmm. And they were like, OK, great. And I was like, awesome. We're going to build this up. And they're like, you're going out on Ozfest. And I'm like, what? Like, because <laughs> I that was not what I was expecting. I thought I was building up this, this street team. And they fucking threw me out. I'd never even been on a moving tour bus. Wow. You know, this is yeah. While it, you're doing the touring, the tour coordinator stuff as well. Well, I, I, I just transitioned out of it. You know, okay. we we found a new tour coordinator, and I, I transitioned out of it. But again, it's like I. This is also like I mean, I'll never forget. I had a laptop that was like this big. I mean, it was like crazy, and like it was my first cell phone, and I didn't know anything about minutes and all that. So every time I'd get a, you know, I'd have road runner be like, dude, your bill was like four thousand dollars. I'm like, I, I don't know. You guys are called. I'm calling people. Like I don't know what to do. But back then it was like you have this many minutes and you have this, you know, it was so many, so many different stipulations and regulations when it came to that. Um, But then it was like, so, yeah, they just thrust me out there. And so I was only able to get the very beginning of it started. And uh, so what I did was like, hey, I'm going to be going around the country, meeting all the street teamers. Come and meet me here. I'm going to give you promo and uh, and and you're going to hand it out during the show. And that was basically what we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing was that my friend who I said, I, you know, I told, I had to tell her I wasn't going to do Ozfest with her. I ended up doing Ozfest with her because I ended up on the tour anyway. <laughs> so like her booth was like my base of operations. And yeah. I also helped her sell stuff because I was, you know, not for nothing. Dude. It's like, well, you know what? You, you've seen Shovel once. You've seen him a fucking thousand times. You're just like, all right, cool. <laughs> I'm just going to hang out here and sell, help you sell shirts, you know? Um, you know, but it was like, uh, but, but that was kind of it. So I just, I, and I met fucking hundreds of street teamers and we did meet and greets with Max and it was, it was really great. And so I got to meet and talk to a lot of these kids to see really what they were about. Yeah. And then when I got back to Roadrunner in September of that year, um, I looked at our list of people and I'm like, we have 27,000 people on our street team. And the, the consensus there was like, well, Streetwise has 85,000 people on their street. And I was like, let me ask you a question. How many people do you think work at Streetwise? There's eight. You're going to tell me that eight people can control 84,000 people out there. Mm-hmm. Really? So I'm like, I'm one person with 20, like 
and the publicist, she's got to deal with what? Maybe 200 fucking journalists, radio stations. There's probably two, 300 at the time out there, you know, retail 27,000. How many of those are actually effective? Well, not only that, what do you do? with? I mean, it was literally like herding cats because you had everybody from every part of the country, every ethnicity, every gender, every everything, you know, and they're all asking you for shit all at the same time. Mm. And it got to the point where I was like every day I'd be I'd like almost have like a panic attack and be under my desk because I'm just like, oh, my God. Like and so I came to the conclusion. I was like, you know what? Fuck what Streetwise has. This is stupid. I'm one person. But the back end that Roadrunner built me was phenomenal. It was like the greatest thing in the world. I could do five, like I could do 15 different things with one click kind of thing. And it was really amazing the way that they had set it up. And I will forever be grateful for that system and jealous at the same time because I was never able to recreate it. But, but it was like, but it's so what I did was I completely destroyed the team and I put it down to zero. I deleted everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I did was I went before I did that, I said, I'm deleting this whole team. If you want to be on this team, you better write to me and let me know why you want to be on this fucking team. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so I got, I got all these emails from people and there were some people like, I just want to get into shows. I believe, you know, but then I'd get people who are like, I'm taking music business classes in college. And I think this is a great thing. And I fucking love fear factory. I love machine head and I'll do anything for them. And I'm like, put that in the keep pile, you know? And I ended up with wow. 500, 500 street teamers who were fucking, for the most part, solid. Obviously, like I had, you know, along the way, you kind of find out if people really have it or if they're just, you know, sure. bullshitting you, you know. But I'll tell you something. It's 2021. I probably still contact or at least are in contact with almost half of my kids. Wow. Still to this day. I've been there for the birth of their babies, for the birth of their children. I've been there for their weddings. I've been there for, you know, graduations. I've been there for all sorts of things that they've done. You know, awesome. when I'm, when I, when I, me and my wife, we took a, a cross country trip, um, two Christmases ago and just along the way, that's all we did was just, all right, cool. We're stopping in Dallas. We're going to see Chelsea. All right. We're stopping in Louisiana. We're going to see Rika. We're stopping here. We're going to see DJ, you know, like everywhere I go, I pretty much have people everywhere this, and two, I love my kids. Two things I want to stop and analyze a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sure. Has Metal Blade got their street team at this point? Is there is there a a brand? Is it still Streetwise, or is Roadrunner innovating here and trying to push the mold, break the mold a bit? Okay, good question. So basically, what happened was Streetwise was making money hand over fist, <laughs> and what they were doing was sending out these reports that were like this thick, and they were just full of bullshit. It was all crap, <laughs> and I knew it was crap. But I just couldn't prove that it was crap. Not until I actually worked there in 2003. And then I was like, oh, that's why it's shitty. Uh, because what they would do is they would find like five kids and have them, you know, those five kids would send 200 pictures in. And, you know, if you go to, I, I mean, I don't know how it is with festivals out there, but, you know, at OzFest, you go to one OzFest, it looks like every other OzFest. You know, it's an mm-hmm. amphitheater in the middle of nowhere. And so if you see one person holding up a, you know, a car, you know, a postcard, Okay, cool. Like that guy's just there. But what they would do is they would take that one kid's 200 pictures and be like, okay, these 20 are Dallas and these 20 are going to be Massachusetts and these 20 are going to be. So they, they basically were just kind of fluffing it all up and it was, it right. was all horseshit. And so, so they're, just, they're just faking the proof yeah, that they were doing that. Completely nothing. faking it. And I that mean, was their it was, model. Let's say, all right, um, whatever label. Give us right. presumably an account of a certain amount of uh, subscription. Let's say a year. We'll push this. We're right. going to send out hundred thousand flyers on all of this on this tour. And here's right. our 
prove it. We sent pictures of our guys doing it, and it was just all horseshit. Right. It was all bullshit. And so, um, and 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 for me, I was like, you know, I need to prove that we're doing what we're doing, and that's why I, I handpicked all those those kids that we had because they were yeah. ones who were like, I'm sending you pictures, I'm sending you this, I'm sending you that. <laughs> Sorry, just a real weird thing. Uh, my Albuquerque guy, who I haven't talked to since I was doing the street team, and he was awesome. He was just one of those dudes who kind of faded out and everything. Literally, like, sent me a package of Breaking Bad stuff from Albuquerque, and he was like, "Dude, I miss you, bro, and thanks for everything." About and I was like okay like holy shit like 20 years later like i'm getting a package of breaking bag swag and you know a thank you card and i'm like holy fucking shit you know but but that was kind of it so my whole thing was they're not teaching their kids what to do they're sending them stuff and they're assuming that they know what to do and if you're a kid in the midwest what do you know about a guest list what do you know about marketing what the hell do you, you get a stack of stickers in your hand you're like all right, cool. Give a couple out to people at school. Like that's okay. You know? So my whole thing was we don't have a huge budget. So everything we have has to get in the hands of people who matter. Yeah. You know, don't give it to grandpa Joe. Don't give it to the homeless guy. Don't give it to, you know, like you find those people if, and I would tell them like, if there's more than five people street teaming at an event, leave or go someplace else. If you're in New York and they're, you know, Slipknot's playing at some huge place and you realize there's just too many street teamers out there, it's just a huge glut, you guys go to Penn Station, you guys go to Port Authority, you guys go to Grand Central. And while these people are waiting, that's when you give it to them, you know? So it was about teaching them strategy. It was about teaching them marketing. The funniest part is that, you know, my nickname became the Brown Satan because I just wore Satan shirts all the time. And then I ended up getting it tattooed on my arm too. So... Um, but like, I would have to have, I would have to field phone calls from parents who are like, okay, who is the Brown Satan? Why won't my kids stop fucking talking about him? And what the hell is going on? And I'd have to be like, okay, like, here's what's happening. Um, you know, here's what I do. Here's blah, blah, blah. But like, I had parents that were like, they invite me over for dinner. You know, I had one kid in New Jersey, his mom called me up and she's like, dude, all he wants to do is street team. He's failing English. He's da 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 like all. And I was like, put him on the phone. And they were like terrified of me. You know, because I was this kind of weird, larger than life kind of person to them. Like I was this guy on the end of the email, on the end of the phone. And I'd be like, hey, is this Wes? And be like, yeah. I'm like, Wes, it's Roe from Roadrunner. And you just hear like him like, uh, you know, like it was like 14, I think, 13, 14, something like that. And I was like, your mom's telling me you're failing English. And he's like, well, my English teacher sucks. I'm like, dude, I don't fucking care. I'm like, I don't need dumb people on my team. And if you're going to fail the primary language of this country, I don't want you on my team. You're going on inactive. That's the way it is until you bring your fucking grades up. And I talked to his mom. I'm like, all right, I'm t- putting him on inactive. He's got to bring his grades up or else he's not going to come back on. She was like, thank you so much. And then Fear Factory ended up doing a uh, signing and he showed up with his mom and he got a straight, like straight A's and had Fear Factory sign his for a park card. And his mom was like, anything you want, like, no problem. And I was just like, like, all right, cool. Like, that's awesome. And uh, ironically enough, uh, I went and did a heavy metal convention in Portland, Oregon uh, in 2018. And uh, this dude comes up to my thing and he's like, you know who I am? And I'm like, no. He goes, I'm Wes. And I was like, and we used to call him the illest Nino because he was so tiny. He was so young. And I was like, holy crap. He was like DJing at a strip club in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I like, gave him like the biggest hug though. And I was just like, this is like insane. But that's, that was what I loved about my, my street team was that they were all, I, I used to call them all my kids, but really what they were was all my, all my little brothers and sisters, you know? And I knew that 
you know, if you're in Arkansas, and, like I have a buddy who's, who's, he was one of my teamers and he's bald head, black dreads coming out of a top knot. You know what? In Arkansas, 2021 or 2000 still doesn't really go over very well out there, you know, but you know, his, you know, the, fa- you know, families and school people and all, you know, bullies and jocks, you know, and they're all telling you that you're not going to be anything and fuck you, you're a fucking loser and da da da. And I was the guy who was like, not here, like, come on in, you know? And, you know, so I accepted all of those people and they were all just littler versions of me in some way, shape or form. You know, I mean, I'm a fucking Indian metalhead from New Jersey. Like <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an Indian metalhead from New Jersey who likes Kiss and Star Wars. Really? Like I, I might as well be gay and, uh, tr- you know, transsexual at the same time. Like how much more of a niche could I thrown myself into? But that's what I realized is that, you know, you got kids in Florida, you got kids in Texas, you got kids in Maine and, and, you know, Oregon and all these kinds of things. And they all have issues. And yeah. I became this big brother to them. They were like contacting me like, dude, what do I do about my parents? Yeah. You know, I'm failing this class. And so it's like, I just became this weird metal guidance counselor for all of them. And, you know, I, I, I like I said, it's like, I love them and I love them. Like they're like my extended family to this day. You know, and I mean, I left in 2003 and, you know, I just, you know, I'm Sierra when I go to the East Coast and next week I'm seeing what, eight, nine of them when I go out there, you know, so it's like I still help them out. I still support them. Some of them are work at companies that have hired War Machine to make their stuff. One of my uh, one of one of my girls in uh, uh, she was my Nebraska girl. Now she lives in Dallas. Uh, the company she works for orders so much stuff for me that there's been two years where they literally kept War Machine afloat. And, you know, like wow. I, you know, like, and if that's, if that's her thank you to me, then awesome. But like, I can't thank her enough mm-hmm. for what she did, you know? So, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, like I just, I still deal with all these kids and that was always the, the prevailing thing was like, I just want to teach them that what we're doing, we're not just handing shit out. We're marketing, we're, we're developing a skill. You know, we're trying to marketing my, my, my PR and marketing teacher used to tell me PR and marketing is about convincing people that chicken shit is chicken salad. And that's what I always told them is like, you know, don't just think that you can just put a stack of flyers on a counter and be like later, that's not going to do anything, you know? So I would have them, you know, like the, they get the CD samplers, they'd slit open the CD sampler and then put the stickers and the flyers and everything inside and make like a little pack. So when they'd go to the shows, it was like, ba-boom, 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 you know, and stuff like that. Like as they started kind of getting into that vibe, they started doing their own stuff and, you know, kind of mixing it up and having listening parties and doing all these kinds of things. And it really did. It just, it, it blew up in such a weird way. I'd have bands like Lamb of God and Shadows Fall. And just like, dude, we, all we do is see your fucking street team everywhere. And I'm like, that's what they're there for, <laughs> you know? It, it's interesting. The, um, the transition from 20,000 to let's hit it to zero and just like put a vetting process in the integrity that solved part of that process and trying to make it more about development. It's something that is so on brand for Roadrunner I'm finding right. every time that's what case wants. He wants his guys developing their own skill set that can be better Roadrunner people. Right. And it looks like you're kind of coffee and pasted the mentality down. And at the same time, it's, also good for indie cred because right it's road even though roadrunner's got slipped not a nickelback and it's just been fucking bought by universal there's still a very ground level entry point 
Right. And I think that's simply a thing you, that there's something I need to unpack there, you know? Yeah. The only thing that's t- sort of sucked about the uh, Universal thing was that we were bought by Island Def Jam, which is distributed by Universal. But um, okay. But it was just that they had their own street team, but they had so much like liquid cash to just throw at things, whereas we still didn't. You know, we we yes, we had our stuff and we could make our stuff, but like they like bought their team like a ice cream truck to drive around and you know, like like different concerts. And I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't have that. I don't have an ice cream truck. Sorry, man. Everyone's got to fucking get there how they get there. You know, I got to the point where you know we would we were using retail posters at the concerts and then kids would take the retail posters down and it was starting to piss off the bands. Cause they were like, we don't see any posters hung up. And I'm like, yeah, because first 10 people come in and they take the posters down and that's it. Mm-hmm. So we came up with this idea of, I came up with this idea if you will, uh, of doing like newspaper print posters. Cause I was like, right. just less valuable. We can make more for less. And mm-hmm. the odds of somebody taking them down are a little bit slimmer, mm-hmm. you know, but like, Island Def Jam's team would be like, oh, like nice posters. And I'm like, you know what? Oh, fuck off, dude. <laughs> like, sorry, man. Sorry. I don't have a Mercedes fucking ice cream truck I get to drive in. Like, all right, we got to fucking save our nickels times and make shit happen, you know? And then that was kind of the, that was sort of what started happening was you had like Streetwise and Island and Epic and everybody had their street teams. And it, it became such a glut uh, because you would go to a concert and people started to look for alternate exits. So they didn't have to deal with street teamers. Mm-hmm. Because all that would happen was people would walk out with a stack of stuff, and the first place they would go is a garbage can. So like, mm-hmm. And that was it. And I was like, okay, this is pointless. If all my shit is just going to end up in the garbage, this is fucking pointless. So we have to come up with a new strategy. We have mm-hmm. to come up with a strategy because, okay, cool. Like, we'll, you know, I'll have two kids handing stuff out at, a, at, at the end of the concert. Like I said, like, you go somewhere else, you go mm-hmm. somewhere else. But if it's going to be you guys and Streetwise and Bam Bitch and Epic and Island, yeah, that's, who's going to care? Nobody's going to yeah. care at that point. The cool thing about it back in the day when Streetwise first started was these, you know, these people felt lucky to get a System of a Down tape or get a Static X tape. They felt lucky to do that. Yeah. But now with everybody doing it, it, it's what I always say. It's like when everyone's special, nobody's special. Yeah. And yeah. that was that was the vibe that started really happening was people, everybody was just it was just getting so glutted, glutted constantly. And it just got to the point where like, you know, people would do like radio campaigns. They'd be like, OK, tell your street team to call into, you know, this radio station. And the radio stations are like, yeah, we know you're doing this because 900 people just called asking about Slipknot. So uh, knock it off. You know, so it kind of sort of backfired in, in certain cases. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I always had to like kind of. I, to me, that was sort of the, the, the strong point of, of doing the road crew was I could go back off, back off of this. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Streetwise and all of them, they were just, to, to me, they were kind of trying to kill a, a housefly with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. You know, like you might get it, but you're also going to wreck shit in the process. Whereas for me, I was kind of like, okay, rather than do that, let's take a step back. And instead of hitting that show where there's 15 people or, you know, street teaming, go to your mall wear your cargo pants, have your backpack and just hand out single CDs to people randomly. Yeah. You know, go enjoy go to the hot top. saturation. Exactly. A little bit separate because then it gets kind of associated it. with a positive experience as opposed to a. Exactly. And that was exactly it. So this way, especially, you know, if you have some teenager and especially back then in 2000, 2001, you know, they, what did they have? They had CD Walkmans, you know, or cassette Walkmans. Sure. 
or, you know, and so it became this thing of like, okay, like I just happened to be at the mall and suddenly this dude handed me a Roadrunner CD that's got 16 songs on it. And holy shit, these bands are awesome. You know, that's a much better experience than like, oh God, more street team. You know, I got to get the car. I don't got all this shit. Yeah. Right. You know, and the amount of people that would just, like I said, it was, I remember, I'll never forget walking out of a show at the palace. I think it was Snot and Soulfly. Um, and it's just like, literally, they were just kind of like, okay. And, it, and the first thing I saw was them just go right to a, tra- a trash can. And I was like, yeah, this, this is, we got to figure this out, you know, because mm-hmm. again, every one of those CD samplers or cassette samplers that didn't make its way into the right hands is a wasted opportunity, you know? And I would tell my kids that too. Like, and if you have extra shit in your, that's, that's how I used to call my teamers too. It was like, Hey, who's got extra shit? Dude, I got tons of shit. Great. You're off the team. <laughs> you know, like, Cause if you're going to bitch and moan about spine shank, not coming to your town and you have a fucking closet full of spine shank tapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a reason they're not coming to your town. You moron, you know? So that was my way of finding out like who's hoarding stuff. Who wasn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, because if if and it was always my top kids were just like, no, nah, dude, like I need more because I'm fucking I'm doing a pizza party and I'm doing this and then I'm going here and then I'm doing, you know, and those are the people I always knew. Like, all right, cool. Like, those are the people I can count on. So they became yeah, like yeah. my my road crew alpha, as I used to call them, because they were the ones who, you know, when somebody was like, hey, I'm on the street. I'm on the like uh, the Internet street team, the E team. Can I be on the street team? I'd be like. Well, you're in Columbus, Ohio. You've got to hook up with uh, Christina, you know, Christina Barnhill and you got to, she's got to take you under her wing and then she's got to be the one to tell me when you're ready. Mm. You know, so it became this thing of like, you don't just fill out a form and then suddenly you're on the team. That's not how the shit works. Yeah, like yeah. you're on my team, then you got to get a, you got to be, uh, uh, you know, kind of promoted and, 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 uh, um, sort I'm looking for like recommended. You yeah. know, you got to be recommended and, and referred by somebody who's on my alpha team, mm-hmm. you know, and they believe in you, then I believe in you. They're my eyes and ears. That's what it needs. That's what it you, needs. You alluded to before was um, the back end. So mm-hmm. what infrastructure is there that's supporting you? Because this is another mm-hmm. interesting thing about Roadrunner is like case is very, it's almost adamant that there has to be technological resilience backing all this stuff up. They're like one of the first label that had a computer in their office in the Amsterdam one in the mid eighties and think there's <laughs> shit like that all the time. Right. So I'm interested in, cause I've never heard what they had in that office. To be honest with you. So they developed it while I was on Ausfest. Mm-hmm. And so when I kind of got back from Ausfest was when I was uh, like kind of beta testing it, you know? Um, and it was just, it just allowed me again to do so much all at once. So it's like, like an, an internet or something like that. Yeah, it was an internet. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, and so what it allowed me to do is I could look at, I'm just going to give you a weird example, but like I could look at, okay, uh, I need to see who's going through uh, Ohio. Okay, cool. These eight bands are going through Ohio in the next five weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I could click on each one of those Ohio dates and it would automatically email everybody in that region. And I, and then I would send one letter and say, Hey, here are the tour dates coming up. Whoever wants in, email me at tickets at Roadrunner and, you know, first come, first serve. And, you know, but then they would have to write their reports on on the Roadrunner site, too. So yeah. that came up, too. And then, like I said, it was brilliant because they were like, if let's just say I, I assigned them five concert reports for the concerts I hooked them up for and they only did two reports it would show me what the percentage of undone reports is versus mm-hmm. what they, what they were supposed to do. And so I could literally go, sorry, dude, you're not going in. You've never, you haven't finished five reports and I hooked you up a bunch of times. Like, so what the fuck? Yeah, and yeah. 
that that helped me really figure out who was good, who was not, who could write reports, because that back then, too, it's like, you know, no different than it is today with like millennials and their own kind of weird sort of language. You know, back then, everything was instant messenger language. Mm hmm. They had certain kids where it's like their reports were like, LOL, LMAO, and da da da, you know. And I was just like, I can't send this to a manager. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're going to think my kids are retarded, you know. So I was like, so I, what I started doing also is kind of finding out like which kids were good at it and which ones weren't. Right. And then the ones that weren't, I'd go, okay, you're obviously into this. You just suck at doing reports. So what I would do is I'd go, okay, here's a stack of stickers. Your job is to fucking put these stickers all over New York. Mm -hmm. I want pictures of every goddamn sticker. If I give you 200 stickers and I'll get 200 photos, you're not getting anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, so they just became like my sticker team kind of thing. You know, so I would have to send people on very specific sort of missions that were tailored to their strengths. Sure. You know, as opposed to punishing them for their weaknesses, <laughs> you know, and because again, like, you know, some of these kids are inner city kids. They're, you know, you know, they have abusive parents or whatever. So it's like, you know, their, their life is now on, you know, starting to be on the internet all the time. Yeah. And they're talking to all these other kids and different chat rooms and all these kinds of stuff, you know? And so they, you know, they might be great on the internet, but then when you meet them, they're like, and I'm like, dude like you wouldn't shut up on instant messenger the other day and i meet you now and you're like right. you know i'm like what the fuck where did that come from so you know i had to really kind of see who was good at what they you know who was good at what and then like i said just sort of tailor it towards what they could do and what they could provide to me and then i could go okay cool like i will reward you this way it's you interesting know? just like the attention to detail whereas as we were saying before the other labels it appeared to be just throw some fucking money at it just get in everyone's was, face you know, that was really what it was. Like I said, it, like I said, it, it was the, that's using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Yeah. You know, you're just trying to just get this thing, but you're just, you know, you might get it, but you're going to just waste so much time and energy and everything. Just trying to do this one thing. I'm, I'll never forget. I was, uh, I was going to a concert and uh, my girlfriend at the time, she would help me street team every once in a while. But uh, I saw this kid from the Island Jeff Jam team and he had uh, primer 55 stickers and he just took the stickers, put them on the ground and then kicked them so that they all just went fluttering everywhere. And she had to like hold me back. She's like, he's not one of your kids. I'm like, no, he's gotta die. Like you don't do that shit, you know? And it's like, I always have to like really be careful with stuff like that because, you know, I'd see other kids wasting their, the band stuff. And I, and that was yeah. the other thing too, is that kids kept thinking, you know, record companies are these bottomless pits of money. You know, they're getting free CDs and free, you know, stickers in the mail. They're free. Mm -hmm. but they never thought to themselves that the band has to pay for these, Yeah, you know, to them, their perspective was always, you know, big record company, big money, da, 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 you know? And, and I had to show them like, yo, every time you don't do this the right way, mm -hmm. you're using up the band's money. And that's one less thing that they can do. That's one less concert they can play. That's one less place they're going to go to. That's one less tank of gas they have to get to the next place, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was really what it was. It was like, I had to really educate them on what they're doing and why what they're doing is really important and how, you know, cause even once Nickelback came into the play, you know, Obviously, I had a you know I had DSI kids and I had Slipknot kids and Fear Factory kids and a lot of them were like fuck Nickelback that's not my thing, and I was like look, the street team is about you know uh, uh, focusing on on the bands that you like you know you want to be on the Machine Head team then I I said you machine Machine Head stuff you hand that out, but I said you know but the thing about marketing is that 
when it comes to marketing, the it's not our job to like it or not like it. It's our job to make people excited about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe you don't like Nickelback. I get it. Don't get me wrong. Not my favorite thing in the world. Okay. But my job is still to promote it and make it happen. And so a lot of my kids, so I was like, so I'd have to ask a lot of my kids like, Hey, can you do me a favor and just work this Nickelback show? And they'd be like, okay, fine. You know, but then they would meet the band and then the band would treat them really well. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, they're like, dude, I totally want to work that next Nickelback show, you know? So it was the idea of like, you you know, giving them the option, but also being like, Hey, and if you don't like it, just like the whole Visa Skywalker thing, if you don't like it, that's not a problem, you know? But if you can work it and get other people excited about it, it's not going to reflect on you. Like suddenly you're some, you know, some, you know, you know, uh, a poser, you know, kind of thing, you know, where you're like doing something you shouldn't really be doing. It's like, no, you're doing marketing. And that's what marketing is about is getting people excited about what you're working on. Uh, Case and Jonas getting involved. Are you reporting it to them? Are they giving a shit about the progress of the street team? (sighs) Yes and no. Um, uh, I'll, I'll never forget when Jonas was like, your street teamers didn't even hand me anything. I'm like, yeah, you're not. I tell them specifically not to hand stuff to you <laughs> because you don't look like a metalhead. You look like somebody's dad. You look like somebody's grandfather. Like you don't, you're exactly who I tell them not to hand shit to, mm-hmm. you know, because you look like the guy that this is going to end up in the garbage. And he, I remember him be like, oh yeah, like I kind of guess so, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, but then, but what ended up happening, I think it, from my perspective of course, um, is that um, there was a, a level of apathy um, that was starting to really set in. And it became this kind of like out of sight, out of mind kind of thing or right. same thing. Like I wasn't really dealing with professionals. I was dealing with children, mm-hmm. you know, and because of that, it reflected on like kind of the way that they looked at me mm-hmm. like, oh, like we hired a child to work with ch- children kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um because I was out there in the trenches, I was handing stuff out. I was still crowd surfing and stage diving and moshing and, uh, you know, so I was still doing all the things that the fans did. And so I think it got to a point where, you know, the street team just became the sort of thing that was out there. It was really weird though. Cause I had a strange kind of carte blanche though, that I wish I understood back then. Like, Oh, I can almost do anything. Cause there, nobody's looking at me, mm-hmm. you know, but when they started sort of taking money away from my, my projects and my bands and, and being like, no, we got to feed the Nickelback machine. Um, that's when I started kind of being like, look, dude, like, you know, like we put out, um, hell alive by machine head, you know? And I was like, all right, what do I get? And they're like, nothing. Like we don't really have money to, to do anything with this. And I'm like, okay, like I have street teamers and machine heads going out on tour. Like, like we need something. Mm-hmm. And I remember they were like, okay, you have like 500 bucks here. And I'm like, okay, like there's 300 million people in America. You're giving me 500 bucks for a nationwide street team. So I was like, what am I going to do? So I called a buddy of mine at, at Dunlop guitar picks. And I was like, dude, how much are guitar picks? And so I told him my, my situation. And he goes, look, for every bag of guitar picks you buy, we'll buy two bags. And so for 500 bucks, I got like 15,000 fucking guitar picks, you know, and my kids were ecstatic because people love guitar picks. And, you know, sometimes the bands would use the murder dolls would use the guitar picks on stage, you know, like it was, you know, and, but I think it sort of, again, just my perspective, but I think it like pissed people at Roadrunner off. They they were just kind of like, well, we didn't want him to do that. You know, like it was almost like it, 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 in a weird way, I, I feel like this, and again, this is just a, general after the war thing but it's mm-hmm. like 
I wonder if it was the type of thing where they were kind of like, well, we don't want to show a band like Machine Head that we really care that much about this record. And if they have kids that are doing it and kids that are excited about working the record, they're going to come back and be like, okay, so these people are all excited about working the record. How come we're not going to radio? How come we don't have more retail stuff? You know, sure. so I, I wonder if, again, that that's a conjecture. Hindsight or, 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and conjecture, because I don't know what they were thinking, but it was it was definitely the vibe I got. Mm-hmm. was that it was kind of like oh like he figured out something you know like he found a loophole kind of thing but right. again it's like that's that's why i ended up leaving because i was just i felt like i was uh just kind of getting pushed more and more into the shadow and mm-hmm. more into the corner and more into the corner and it got to the point where i was just kind of like you know i'm i'm i you know like when we were in a marketing meeting and they're like oh so what are you guys doing in la just going to the beach and i'm like dude i come to work at 9 30 a.m and i leave at 2 a.m like my relationship is suffering. I'm going to concerts every single night because we were right on the Sunset Strip. So I could go to any show. I'm like, I don't get home until like one or 2 a.m. And then I come to work the next day. And it was just kind of like that idea of, you know, like that's what you think we're doing, you know, and then that came more of my reasoning for like leaving. And and so to this day, I, a, do you end up working at, in the LA office then? Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so basically I had been petitioning for a long time to get moved to the LA office. And finally, after I think it was in 2001, they were like, okay, we're finally, we're going to let you go. And I was like, all right, great. So I went out there, I found an apartment and all this stuff. And then I flew back and it was September 9th, 2011, 2001. Guess what happened two days later? Nickelback Silver Side Up came out. Yeah. So did God hit us all by Slayer. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so nine 11 happened and I had to put all of those plans on hold, um, because we couldn't leave the city. We couldn't leave. We couldn't do anything. Everything was turmoil and chaos and everything. And, um, so I ended up, uh, leaving at the end of 2001. And so I got to LA, me and my girlfriend drove cross country, got to LA for in 2002. And then I just kind of started there. But right. what I didn't realize was that it, became sort of a self-imposed exile for me. I felt like, cause like when I was in New York, my street teamers would show up, they would make signs in our lobby. You know, they were just always present. So there was this always ever present. Uh, it was almost kind of like, it was always in motion. Everything was always in motion. There's always kids coming, me giving them CD samplers, go out there, go do your thing, et cetera, et cetera. And people saw that and it was always like, wow, like Rose doing this, da, da, da. But when I left, that went away. And I didn't realize that at the time that it was kind of, you know, it, 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 the lack of me being there became this like, oh, is Roe even really doing his job? Kind yeah. of thing. At least I was, like I said, that was a vibe I got, you know? And then it also became like, oh, you're in LA. Like, so you're just fucking being lazy. And I'm like, not really, you know? And, and so that's, that's like I said, that's where I started getting disenfranchised and everything like that, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not like I, I didn't blame Nickelback ever for that. Those guys are super good dudes. They know how to write a goddamn song. That's for sure. You <laughs> know, but they, and they treated my kids really, really well. They always yeah. treated my kids. And that's something I will always forever be grateful for. You know, it's, it's easy when, you know, when you do blow up the way they did to just be like, Oh, street teamers, you know, like, you know, but they always were like, nah, come on in, man. You guys, you know, are you guys of age? Can you guys drink? All right, cool. Here's a beer. You know, like they, they always treated my kids super, super well. And that's, you know, that was, that was something I could never be like stupid Nickelback. I'm like, no, they, they were still cool. And they had no control over the fact that, you know, money was coming out of my budget and going into their, like, 
You know, it's yeah, not yeah. like Chad was just like street team. We don't need that. You know, like I don't think he was doing that. <laughs> you know, so it's like I've never had any animosity towards those guys. They definitely don't deserve the hate that they get. That is for fucking sure. It's you know, so fucking it's so illuminating though, dude. I knew there was something about the street team, man. I knew there's something there which is like really resonant with the way that the that the blood ran through that fucking company, and it's like you've really really sort of emphasize some of those bits do you have any regrets then of your time at roadrunner i do uh plenty <laughs> sure. um one, one of my regrets is um when i left roadrunner when i was interning in 98 um that's one of my regrets i left way I, I left very prematurely i was i had a girlfriend out in los angeles i was super excited to be with her and so right after i graduated college i i moved right out there it was like may of 98 and um i i knew I knew I should have waited until the fall, you know, and I didn't. And that was, and I think that really fucked me because I, I didn't, um, I feel like if I had left in the fall, it would have, I, I would have had one more Osmus under my belt being 98. Mm. And I think I would have solidified myself a little bit better so that coming out to LA would have been a different story. However, that if that happened, then I wouldn't have started the road, road crew. So, you know, there's that. The only other regret i really have is um uh leaving when i left mm. because i i felt like i left my like i kind of was like all right family like i'm going on to bigger and better things and some of them came with me to streetwise and some of the other places that i went like century media um you know but in in a lot of ways it was it, you know none of the places i went to i thought like streetwise was going to be this super step up for me like this next evolution is working at this big company and when i went there and i saw that it was just smoke and mirrors and like a hollywood backdrop basically like you know like blazing saddles you know you could just push over the fucking wall and just, you know and that's when i really that that was when i really felt that pang of regret where i was like fuck i really thought i was moving to something bigger and better and yeah. it was just this hokey phony baloney bullshit kind of thing mm-hmm. and that was that that was really my my big thing um i i did work on the roadrunner united uh concert oh really yeah i I worked on that i did production on that which was and it's funny too because they were like no we're not doing a dvd we're not doing a dvd we're not doing and i was like okay cool all right but i was there for all the rehearsals and so i have tons of footage that never made it onto this dvd and the next you know they're like oh here's the dvd and i'm like "I, i have so much shit like I have Joey Jordison. I have video of Joey Jordison watching Roy Mayorga play Spit It Out. Like, mm. no one's ever going to see that shit, you know? And I was just like, I have so much. And they're like, oh, why didn't you tell us? And I'm like, because you guys told me that you weren't doing anything with it. So why the fuck would I do it? You know? Um, so, yeah. So, you know, it, it was, it was, that was definitely my, my regret. And then, uh, you know, I was trying really hard to get back into Roadrunner after a while because I was just, I was so disenfranchised with Streetwise and with, with Century Media and all these places. And, uh, when I went back there, I talked to my old boss and he was like, all right, send me a resume. And I'm like, you, you want me to send you my resume? Like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? And, you know, and it was just like that kind of thing that like hit me really hard where I was just like, fuck man. Like, you know, but it, 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 you know, again, it's all hindsight stuff, you know, but it, it was, it was those things that sort of hurt at the, you know, at the time. Cause I, especially if I was really suffering and kind of being like, fuck, I really need a job. I really need a job. And Roadrunner has no more street team guy. I'm right here. I have, I have, I know what I'm doing. You know, I know yeah, this. Yeah. And you know, when they're like, well, send us your resume. I was like, uh, wow, that's a fucking slap in the face. Yeah. So, yeah. and I'm sure, I'm sure if I brought that up to my old boss, he would have been like, I didn't say that. And I'm like, 
we were walking down 14th street motherfuckers like i know where we were when you said that and i stopped in my <laughs> tracks and i was like are you fucking joking you know so th- those those are my regrets i mean you know now i have so much more experience obviously so there's so much i i kind of wish I, I i wish i just sort of played my hand better i guess in a yeah. weird way i i i would like easy myself to say to now a, though isn't it easy yeah but i would like myself to a very inexperienced poker player yeah that's really the way it is you know where it's almost like i showed my hand too off like too quickly at times um i didn't hold back when i should have held back you know and, and also i was I was filled with so much. Uh, I mean, my my AOL screen name was Angry Brown Satan. So it's like I was just constantly. I always felt like we were such underdogs at this company, and my kids were such underdogs in their lives that to be sort of treated the way I felt like I was being treated just felt so like 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 I just wanted to punch something, you know. And and so it's like I I constantly let my anger. And bitterness kind of get the better of me in a lot of ways. But I mean, like, you, you know, but then there were certain things that like are, are I don't want to say timeless because that's a fucking arrogant way to put it. But for me, that for me, for my life are timeless, uh, like that Roadrunner Wrath of Row CD. I don't know if you saw that. No. <laughs> if you have your if you have your Internet open, look up Wrath of Row CD right now. Okay, okay. let's fucking <laughs> do it. Actually, I got to write a post about it because that CD is now 20 years old. Dude, send it to Monty because he's um he does those weekend CD cover things, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does all those. Yeah, the cover stuff is really cool. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so that was our sampler for the summer of two thousand and one, uh, and we made a hundred thousand of those, and we gave those out everywhere. I had people coming up to me going, "Dude, I got this in Alaska," you know, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" I mean, walking down the street, I do. I've had so many people at places like Ozfest and Notfest, just like, "I have a." They are leaning into the Indian heritage. Big. Well, that was me. That was me. I did. did (laughs) Well, okay. So I have, I have have two stories with this. So the number, number, number one thing is that I am Indian and my, my parents are super um, uh, old school, very religious. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit of a jab to them, you know? Um, my assistant at the time uh, was, I mean, this is like literally the beginning of a green screen. We had green construction paper behind. That's literally what we had. Okay. Um, and then that picture is a picture I took on Ozfest uh, in, uh, in Idaho at a show. And uh, so it was me just like floating there and holding, you know, each thing. And he kind of knew very, he knew basic Photoshop kind of thing back then. And that's, that's what we made. But the other thing that happened that year was uh, Sepultura came out with, um, said, uh, uh, was it against? Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I can't remember. Um, I think so, for 2001. Is that 2001? Was it against? I'm pretty sure. Shit, no, so, I'm fucking totally so I, blanking. I can, I can check. So so I got my dad on that record. Nation. <laughs> Nation, thank you. So I got my dad on that record. <laughs> so uh, Andreas, this is kind of a funny story, and just totally on the side for everything. But Andreas and Igor came up to me, and they're like, hey, Ro, um, they said you're Indian. Do you speak Hindi? And I said, no, I don't, but my parents do. And they said, well, we have this Gandhi quote that we just want translated into Hindi so we can use it on the record. Do you think he would mind? No, I don't see why not. Like, he speaks Hindi all the time. I can't understand it, but I'm sure he'll be game. So he, uh, so they gave me a portable DAT player. So great story. I love the story. He, he gave me a, they gave me a portable DAT player. And so I go home and I was like, Hey dad, um, one of my bands wants to uh, record you uh, saying this line in Hindi. And the first thing goes, I'm not doing the cooking. And I was like, 
Uh, wait, what? 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 What the hell are you talking about? What, are, what do you mean cocaine? What the fuck are you talking about? He goes, the band, they go to the studio and they do the cocaine. I'm not doing the cocaine. And I'm like, no, dude, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, we're just going to do it in the living room. And then out comes my mom from the kitchen. And she's very like short, squat, fat Indian lady. And she comes out with a rolling pin. She's like, he's not doing the cocaine. I'm like, are you people <laughs> fucking out of your minds? What is wrong with you? So anyway, so my dad does the line. It's the uh, be the change you want to see in the world right. quote from Gandhi. And so he translates it, does it in the uh, in the deck recorder like seven or eight times. And that was that. And so I give it to Roadrunner and that's it. And now when somebody appears on a record, so let's just say you, you know, somebody, a friend appears on a friend's record, you know, and they're like, I don't need to get paid. They still have to sign off a, a waiver, you know, like mm -hmm. a release form. And it basically says that they're going to get paid a dollar mm -hmm. for that, for their contribution. And it's a, it's just a formality. It's a throwaway thing. Nobody really cares. It's, it's a, it makes it a transaction, not a favor. And then it exactly. is. I've, yeah, I've, I've got to have one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, so I bring it to my dad to sign, and he reads it, and he, like, scrutinizes every line. And he's like, one dollar? Insult. And I'm like, are you going to seriously push my band's record back because you're insulted? Like, this is just a formality. You refuse to fucking sign it. So I had to go back to Rotor and be like, can you just give him like a hundred bucks, please? <laughs> and they cut him a check for a hundred dollars. And basically my dad is a Roadrunner Records recording artist. That is fucking <laughs> And so after track seven on Nation is my dad saying the quote and he's thanked in the record and he's in the liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> and so so that year when we did the, the whole thing, I was like, oh, that would be just a really funny jab. And then if you look at the cover, the T-shirt I'm wearing, it says enjoy Satan, but it's in Coca-Cola letters. Yes. You know, so it was just a total jab at, at him and at, at the whole thing. And it was just it was so silly. That year was so goofy. But yeah, I'm gonna put uh, this up on the um, the intro to the podcast if that's okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's like my one of my favorite stories. Is just <laughs> I was like because at the time I was like, did I mention cocaine? Like I don't even remember <laughs> when would I have said cocaine? Like that's a, that was the first thing that came out of his mouth. His mouth was, I'm not doing this cocaine. I'm like, what? <laughs> so yeah, so the, so it's like you know, even though I have my regrets about Roadrunner, I had. It, you know, some people were like, oh, you put the row in Roadrunner. And I'm like, that's the greatest thing anybody could ever say to me, you know, but it was, uh, I, I really, I almost got a Roadrunner tattoo because I was like, dude, I'm a lifer. I want to be here forever. You know, oh, so dude, last night I watched you on a podcast. I think it was, um, tell me, talk to me. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, talk to me. Yes. Josh, to me. A, a Roadrunner mug. Oh, yeah. Um, is, is, it, is it to hand? Um, the only reason I'm asking is because Mark Everson had the exact same one when I spoke to him yesterday. And I think we should just do like, if you've got the road on a mug, you've got oh, to show yeah. it. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's uh, downstairs or something. And yeah, I think it's just downstairs in my, my, my mug cabinet. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm game. Uh, and, and the cool thing about even with War Machine was that uh, for the Golden Gods, I got to make uh, Roadrunner matches and ashtrays. Oh, for, awesome. for golden gods you know so it's like so it was just cool to still be able to do stuff for them do stuff with them you know um and that's you know i mean and and seriously it's like that touring experience being on ozfest that was the most insane crazy shit that i've mm -hmm. ever had to deal with i have stories from that tour like you can't imagine we almost got arrested at the canadian border i met a guy who had tattoos all over him of just 
people getting fucked in the ass. Every tattoo was somebody getting fucked in the ass. Um, Pocatello, Idaho had a really crazy thing where they built a uh, an airport over the sewage plant. So when it rained, the sewage kind of came to the surface. So there was tons of flies. It was just, I have so many wacky stories from that tour. That And then this is me just like, is this something that happens every time, you know, cause I'm, this is my first time on the road and I'm like, does this happen to everybody? Cause this is the most bizarre shit ever, mm. you know? Um, but it was, yeah, that was like, that tour was just so insane. And like, by the time I, it was really funny too. I didn't, I didn't eat junk food back then. And so I would only eat catering and, and only when catering was available, et cetera, et cetera. So, but all the whole time was me carrying boxes of, of, of cassettes uh, to and from our bus to the, to my friend's booth and everything. So I could give them to kids. And so I lost about 50 pounds on tour. And so when my girlfriend at the time saw me at, at Ozfest in Los Angeles, uh, I didn't know what I looked like. And she was like, <laughs> And so I had all these pictures that, and, and these pictures actually ended up getting lost. And then when I moved to LA, I found them and I didn't know what I looked like. I literally looked like a burnt matchstick. I was just thin and brown with like my head shaved, except for like when it grew in a little bit. And I was dark, dark and scrawny. It was just, I was like, I look like a burnt matchstick, but it was just, it was such a crazy, it was funny too. After I got back, uh, I went and saw a band called Lincoln Park at the Roxy in, in LA and people were like, this is going to be the biggest thing in the world. And I was like, I've been on tour with this all summer. Like, what's the big deal? And then they fucking blew up out of nowhere. I was like, Oh, all right. I guess so. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, those, those Roadrunner years were just, they were so chaotic and so, but so much fun, but mm. so chaotic, but so much fun, but so chaotic, <laughs> you know? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't seriously, it's like, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it, you know, it really was. It was like working at my favorite place, you know, and with all my favorite people. And I loved everyone that worked there. And, you know, I, I love that I'm still friends with, with all of them for the most part, you know. I'm going to see a bunch of them. I'm going to see Abramson actually next week. Uh, actually, when, the week after when I fly to New York. Um, you know, so it's like I get to see a bunch of the people I used to work with. And it's, it's always just fun, you know. Out here in L.A., we actually, uh, me and some of the L.A. people, uh, we get together and we just have a little L.A. office, like Roadrunner office kind of get together. And it's like, yeah, and it's like this 20 years later, you know, like we still are just like, nah, like we fucking love each other to death, you know. So it, it is, man. It's it's it really is a, an incredible thing, an incredible experience, and and I do wish there 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 are things again that I wish I could have been there for. I, I wish I could have been there for, you know, seeing Stone Sour really get big and seeing Kill Switch yeah. really get big and and see Trivium, you know, you know, pave this path. I remember when Trivium were just kids in Florida, you know, and and then when Roadrunner signed them, I was like, really? But then it's like I remember seeing them and being like, holy shit, you know. So just all of these bands really just. I, there, there are some of those bands where I'm just like, fuck, man, that would have been that would have been really a really cool thing to be a part of. But you know, I got to I got to work Iowa. I got to work the 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 first Slipknot, you know, the second half of the first Slipknot record. Mm. You know, I got to work Fear Factory. I got to work so many awesome, awesome bands, and and even bands that didn't do well, like Anyone and Downer. You know, th that was the thing about Roadrunner was that for every one Roadrunner band, you had like. 20 or 30 century media bands, you know? And that's what I always loved about Roadrunner was almost like we were always able to cut through all the chaff mm -hmm. and find that one diamond in the rough, you know? you know. And Monty was fucking brilliant at that, even though he did sign some duds, but 
he, you know, he could, he really could find like, I mean, you know, that slipknot, you know, like that slipknot magic or, you know, like just, you know, just some of that magic that he really brought in, you know, that, that we had there, you know, even, even the ones that didn't do good, like workhorse movement and stuff. It's like, they were phenomenal. If you want to hear a really amazing band, listen to Cinch. Yep. Oh my God. That they opened for Stone Sour on, on, I can't remember if it was Stone Sour's first tour, but Dude, in my opinion, that band should have been like the next Pearl Jam. They were fucking amazing. The dude had an incredible voice. And that's one of those things where I'm like, fuck, man, that that record should have done so, so well. Yeah. But again, it was it was really fun. And it's just it's always great to see, you know, see some of these bands still, you know, like when I did 70,000 tons, it's like I got to tell the guys in Sepultura my dad's cocaine story, you know, and I was like, <laughs> like that still like makes me laugh, you know. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a special place. I, it's it's. I'm glad you're sharing all this because it's. I know why I like it as a fan, as mm. the dude who was at the front row and Trivian played leads for the right. first time. It's like you know there's something special there. It's interesting because like I, I I realized that Roadrunner was something special when I looked at the back of Constitution for uh, Treason, Constitution of Treason, and realized mm-hmm. it was a Century Media record. And I was like, oh, I thought. I'm used to see a little red thing on this yep. kind of sound. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? <laughs> that was the one thing, uh, you know, you, you talk about regrets. One of the things that I do regret also was that I didn't do enough with my European counterparts. I, I felt like if I had gotten to fly to Europe and really meet with the UK staff and meet with the Germany staff and all of that, I think, I think that would have really, that would have, I think that would have been a, made for a much more cohesive scenario and and that's yeah. one of the things i mean i love i mean i love the staff that was in in the uk kirsten springs and 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 and, and um you know everybody that was there um but it was like but that's that's what i really regret was that i never got to make it to england to talk to them and and really kind of sit down and go like okay cool what are you guys doing what are we doing yeah, yeah. you know you guys got cd samplers when we were still fucking using cassettes you know like okay mm-hmm. why how can we bridge this gap and those were the kinds of things that i really really was you know that that's one of the things i kind of regret was just not being able to talk to the people in australia not really be able to talk to the people in japan and see what the you know see how we were different see how we were the same and see what we could do together that could have really kind of made it even more cohesive. you know yeah man I'll track them down. We'll do a we'll do a conference. We'll do like a four way. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, Michelle man. Kerr. Sorry, I was trying to remember her name. Michelle Kerr. Sorry, Michelle, if you're seeing this, I apologize. I forgot. I, <laughs> also, two three o'clock in the morning. So, but uh, but yeah, yeah. but I mean, but yeah. So that's that's kind of that's that's sort of my Roadrunner story. Like I said, I got a million tour stories and bullshit like that, which are just ridiculous. But mm-hmm. that's definitely for another <laughs> <laughs> time. Dude, I, I appreciate. Um, I appreciate you, you sharing your, like, what, within, what, 36 hours of me contacting you? Hmm? <laughs> I appreciate you um, sharing with you wanted to, You wanted to talk to me about Star Wars, Metal, and Roadrunner. I'm like, yeah, who cares what fucking time it is? <laughs> I don't <give> a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. Like, this is, this, is, this is my kind of thing. You know, if anything, I'm going to be all buzzing now. I'm going to be like, fuck, I won't be able to go to sleep now. I'm going to be like, fuck, man. Well, thank you again, man. You have yourself a wonderful day, and I am going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll catch you in a bit, bro. All right. Cheers, Take care, buddy. <laughs>